Welcome. I am your host, Manpreet, aka MMA Lock of the Night, and your boy on Twitter at MMA LOT, and joined by my guy, Cody Saftik. You guys can follow him at CJ Saftik on Twitter. And we are here propping you up for UFC or UFC 269. I'm so used to the fight nights by now, but yeah. we have a pay per view event, hence why my, my, my guy, uh, Cody Saftik, is with us uh, this week. Cody, uh, a month off from the podcast, but obviously you're doing the, the Dogger Pass podcast over there as well. How have things been going? How are the horses? How are the betting? Catch me up. Give me a, a one-minute spiel on what Cody's been up to since the last time we saw you on this channel. Yeah, so we got two DOP horses. One's currently racing. One's a baby that's still in training. But the baby looks like a monster. So knock on wood if everything keeps together with him. He's our little lottery ticket. And then the other girl, Callisto Dream, she's actually racing tomorrow night. So as far as the horse racing goes and the DOP racing, that's been pretty solid. As far as the picks goes, uh, we survived last week. Aldo came through and was able to kind of save our top ticket and because he was plus money to begin with, it definitely helped out. But action man, Chris Curtis, I'll tell you what, he took no damage. God damn. If they could just let the guy fight once a month, little Cody would be chilling on a beach somewhere because uh, <laughs> I doubt they'll give us those kind of prices ever again. But it's been a fun run. It's been a good run. I think we got, what, two UFC events to wrap out the year. Bellator's right. finished. There's a couple of greasy cards here and there. Tony Laramie, make sure you get some Tony Laramie on Friday's LFA. Um, but yeah, let's just finish it out with a bang, have some fun, hit some winners. And uh, this is not only a pay-per-view, it's a 15-5 pay-per-view. So uh, we'll get we'll jump into it, hopefully not waste too much time. Exactly. I can't wait for it. And shout out to the Laramie brothers, of course, obviously repping Ontario. But I believe Tony's been spending the last couple months down there at Extreme Couture. So I can't wait to see what his LFA debut looks like. Shout out to Cody for pointing that out. All right. Yeah. Like Cody said, we got 15 fights to get through. And I did tease a little bit of a special announcement uh, before jumping onto this. I will be getting to that before we get into the main card. I believe the last fight on the prelims uh, is going to be uh danny gay against josh Emmett. so after that i will drop a nice little tidbit for you guys i'm sure you guys are going to want to hear as well so cody let's not waste no, uh, any more time let's get into the freaking card 15 fights like you said kicking off the night we got priscilla cashora going up against jillian robertson in terms of odds we're looking at minus 360 for robertson plus 300 the return on priscilla cashora and uh, robertson used to be my my bay when it came to betting unders and and most recently it hasn't really been working out obviously the tyler santos was the last fight where i actually played the under and I was kind of surprised in Santos's knack for wanting to play in the guard in that fight. I thought she'd look to get that fight back to the feet and kind of just rough her up on the feet where I truly thought she'd have a massive advantage, as we saw in her last fight against Joanne Calderwood. However, she just grinded out Roberts from on top, and that, that under was definitely doomed after that. However, here against Priscilla Cashuera, man, I'd be surprised if if Cashuera gets top position somehow, if she tries to maintain it. Because more often than not, we see her go out there and try to swing big bombs on the feet. She's just trying to knock you out. I think she is one of the least skilled fighters on the entire roster. However, she has that durability and that cardio to really uh, put a hurting on her opponents, just as she did last time against Gina Mazzini, where Mazzini had a very successful first round, but was really starting to gas out and was not able to find uh, you know much success after that, that first round. Uh, here against Robertson, I think those takedowns are going to be there really... Uh, relatively easily and then we know on the ground robertson really likes to go for submissions she's way more of a submission over position type uh fighter and i feel like that's going to help us uh you know play into that fight doesn't go to decision line here so the prop that i'm kind of looking at is robertson inside the distance uh at minus 120 again i wish we we're getting plus odds on that but if you want to get a little bit uh well, I guess there isn't much of a change here. We got minus 120 on her to win inside the distance, plus 100 for her to win by submission. So just take the inside the distance in case we um, 
in case we have trouble, uh, you know, getting that submission and she ended up going for the ground and pound instead. I'm going to be on the Robertson side here inside the distance, but even the under two and a half around minus 150, I don't mind in case Cachoeira does find her way back to her feet and goes out there and uh, knocks her out. So, uh, yeah, I'd rather take the under here than take the chalk on uh, Robertson myself. Cody, I know you love fights when they go to a decision. Is this one that you see doing so as well? We oh we we lost Cody. I should have known when he started to freeze up on me there. So hopefully we get him right back into this uh right back into the podcast here. Uh but yeah, in regards to this fight, you know, not going the scorecards, it really does come down to the fighting style of both of these women. And I think that Robertson, you know, given how aggressive she is on the ground, uh, should be able to open up some take or, or finishing opportunities for her. Seeing the takedown uh defense of Priscilla Cashwell in that Gina Mazzani fight was was abysmal, right? Like, how can you truly uh, be confident that she's going to be able to stuff takedowns here, seeing how easily she was giving up takedowns against Mazzini? And we got my guy Cody back. Cody, I'm not sure if you heard what I was saying. I'm going with the fight. doesn't go to decision under two and a half. Robertson by submission, although there's not a much difference between that and the inside the distance, so I'd rather take the inside the distance. I know you like your knack for fights going to a decision. How do you see this one going down? Yeah, I definitely do. So how's this for a line? The over one and a half minus 145. What I like about that line is I do expect Julian Robertson to go out there and get the takedowns relatively easily. You mentioned not only is Cachoeira giving up takedowns in her last fight, but uh, the Molly McCann fight in particular. I mean, she's just getting out wrestled pillar to post by McCann. And when she does get taken down, she doesn't have the greatest ability to scramble and get back up. So that's a path of victory for Julian Robertson right off the hop. Here's the thing, though. If you're Cachoeira, the best, her best advantage in all of her fights is She's pretty durable, right? So she lasted the over one and a half against Valentina Shevchenko. Just got mauled the, yeah. the complete every second of the way, but uh, but still lasted that over one and a half. If you look at her two subsequent losses, both by decision. Do I think she goes out and finishes Jillian Robertson early? No. When Robertson's fresh and able to grapple, it'll be fine. If Robertson's able to get her down, smash her up, I still think it hits the over one and a half. Robertson then maybe locks up a submission. If Cachoeira is going to win this fight, She's going to win later on. Robertson's going to get tired. Robertson's going to fail some of those takedown attempts. And then Cachoeira's going to beat her up standing. So I know my boy Paul Shaughnessy liked that Cachoeira inside the distance. I didn't like it. Inside the distance, TKO, small sprinkle because it's like plus 450. You know, you try to chase her in round two. You try to chase her in round three. You'll get great value on it. But I think no matter who wins, they could finish inside the distance. You could be right. But no matter who wins, over one and a half. Only minus 145. That's what I like here. Yeah, this is one of those spots where, like, the the type of submission, I feel like Robertson would benefit for going for chokes rather than, like, trying to get an arm bar or a leg lock because it doesn't seem like Cashwara intends on tapping to anything other than a choke or even being put to sleep here. So I'm really looking forward to seeing how Robertson approaches this fight once it hits the mat. All right, let's move on to the next one here. We got Randy Costa going up against Tony Kelly. In terms of odds, obviously, we're looking at uh, minus 180 here for Randy Costa, plus 160 to return on Tony Kelly. Randy Costa was about like minus 220, minus 230 earlier in the week. And now finally some confidence coming in on the Tony Kelly side of things. I don't, I, 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 what Randy Costa, like we, we know what his fighting style is, right? Like if he can finish you in the first round, he's going to finish you in the first round. And then in the second round, things get very shaky. And the funny thing is it only took about four minutes of major success for him and the Adrian Giannis fight for him to start slowing down. Even after having success, Cody, me and you have been watching this sport for years and years. And we see when a guy is having success that leads to confidence and that kind of, 
you know, nullifies any chance of them kind of slowing down or gassing. But that's the complete opposite here for, for Randy Costa. He wasn't able to get Yanez out of there in that first round and obviously paid for it in the second round, getting getting finished. That's happened twice to him now. Brandon Davis, obviously, I believe that was either his UFC debut or his second fight. And then obviously Yanez last time around. Tony Kelly, on the other hand, uh, he's been in some wars already inside the UFC, right? His fight against Kai Kamaka was an amazing fight. I believe they got fight of the night honors that night too. And uh, that, that fight really showed me that I feel like he has what it takes to go out there and finish a guy like Costa if this fight does reach the second round. He can take a beating and he can still keep moving forward and really put the put the pain on his opponents. I think if you're backing Costa here, taking him inside the distance or taking the under one and a half is probably the way to go. But if it escapes that first round, I think Kelly starts to take over and I think we see him get a finish. He's mainly, well, his bread and butter is that ground game. I think if he gets the fight to the ground, he that submission will eventually open itself up after Costa starts huffing and puffing, as we know he normally does. So personally, I like the under one and a half here at plus one ten. But most importantly, I like the 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 fight doesn't go to decision. I know it's a little bit chalk right now. I think it's a prime parlay spot. Uh, even the fight doesn't start round three. I think that's a decent spot as well. I'm expecting war between these guys. My official prediction is going to be Randy Costa in round one at plus one seventy five. Uh, but I'm taking that fight doesn't go to decision just in case Kelly survives early here. How are you seeing this one go down? Okay, so I can see the angle of fight doesn't go the distance for sure. On one hand, you've got Costa, who just seems to have an exuberant amount of power. If you look at his wins in the UFC, obviously he's deaded the guys, but even in his losses, I mean, Brandon Davis took a beating in the early going, and then he tired out. And then Adrian Yanez took a beating in the early going, but he tired out. Now, if you look at Adrian Yanez and the guys quickly blossoming into a top 15 guy in the division, <clears throat> There's a lot to like there, right? The fact that Randy Costa was able to go out there, soundly outstrike him for five minutes, what could this guy be like if he could fight for two rounds, fight for three rounds? Crazy. So here's the angle I'm approaching this one at, right? On one hand, you've got Randy Costa. We know he's got the power. And again, yes, he could get the finish. But if he overexerts himself like he has and gets tired, the finish is going to go towards you know his opponent. That's why you're hitting your fight doesn't go the distance. I like it. What I don't mind here is the over one and a half. The reason I'm saying the over one and a half is if I'm Sanford MMA, Costa's camp, if I'm his coaches, if I'm his training partners, you know how talented this guy is. You know he's got a deadly head kick. Why not set it up? See, in his last fight with Giannis, he threw tw what, 12 head kicks in the first round. Like, it's not a sustainable pace. So why not go out there and just be a little more relaxed? Now, Randy Costa made his UFC debut against Brandon Davis on short notice, like a week or two's notice, and he had, what, four pro MMA fights, yeah. all of which were with against guys with losing records or no wins? Like... Holy shit, man, he got thrown right into the deep end right off the hop, and you can see him developing. The thing with young fighters, you and I have gone to a lot of regional show MMA. We've gone to a lot of amateur MMA. What do those guys do that, that pros don't? They get over-anxious, and they just rush in there, and they don't faint, right? In this case, you can see Randy Costa. He, he's nervous. Get in there. You want to get the job done as quick as possible. I think with a little more maturity, you learn from that Yanez loss. Oh, you know what? Take your time. You'll see a little more measured approach. And so that leads towards the over one and a half for the Randy Costa side of things. On the flip side of things with Tony Kelly, he's never been knocked out, right? The dude's durable. The dude can take a shot. And even the Zane Kamaka fight, Kamaka doesn't have a whole lot of power, let's be honest. But like, Tony Kelly can take a hell of a punch, man. He's Andrea Lee's boyfriend. You saw what kind of shape she came in for her last fight, like tremendous. Uh, if you see anything from social media, Tony Kelly, he is in great shape, no doubt about it. And he can push a pace. He's got good cardio. He's scrappy. So you've got a scrappy guy with a good chin versus a guy that... You know, usually bum rushes the finish, but against a scrappy, durable guy, probably going to take a more measured approach, hit that over one and a half, minus 135, good enough price tag. You know, we're expecting fireworks, we're expecting dynamite, but 
Still, seven and a half minutes. Keep in mind, Kelly never been knocked out. He can't take a punch. I like the over one and a half. I know you're going the other way. So I don't mind your fight doesn't go the distance, but I'm going to go with the over one and a half. Yeah, I do like that as well. Um, I, I do like your, your your analysis in regards to Costa possibly coming in with a more measured approach. Uh, you would have feel like he would have done that even after his Brandon Davis loss, right? And he still goes out there and tries to get away with that as well. We'll see if it's able to change here. I think even with the discipline approach, we could hit that over one and a half. But I think I, I just can't see him going out there for 15 solid minutes and trying to deal with a guy like Tony Kelly, who I believe is going to be in his face and really be pushing him there. So I'm looking forward to I think it's going to be a barn burner regardless. Regardless, uh, but I'm really looking forward to seeing how that one plays out. All right, let's move on to the next fight here. We got Ryan Hall going up against Derek uh, Minner. In terms of odds, we're looking at minus 200 for Ryan Hall, plus 170 the return on Derek Minner here. Uh, both pretty untrust untrustworthy guys, right? R Ryan Hall, uh, he's built this mythical beast of himself uh, with his jujitsu. Uh, but if he can't get his jujitsu going, like what are we left with? A guy that just throws spinning shit and just just tries to land these unorthodox blows, tries to goat his opponents into taking him down. Like I feel like sometimes he throws some of this spinning shit just to get off balance and kind of give confidence to his opponents that they can take him down but they're like what do you mean I, i'm not, not going to take you down why would i take you down uh and then it just gives us such a weird fight right even the Ilya Taporia fight before he actually ended up getting finished like it was such a weird fight with the Derek Minner side of things yeah sure he went 15 minutes controlling Charles Rosa on the ground but we saw him last time around go back to his old ways against uh Darren Elkins tried to get him out of there with a guillotine or any type of submission he was able to muster up and then obviously he gasses out in the second round and Darren Elkins does what Darren Elkins does best gets a comeback victory that night I have no interest in betting this fight. Like I could see, I could see it being one of those where, like, let's just let's just get the over one and a half. Might, that might be a decent spot here. Maybe even the over two and a half, where we see a large amounts of inactivity from either guy wanting to engage with either guy. My only qualm is if Derek Minner somehow just gasses himself out. Like again, outside of that Charles Rosa fight, the guy almost gasses in every single fight. Even with all that and said. I still feel like Derek Minner is the side here at plus money, and I am going to actually go with the the Minner decision prop here, uh, which I believe is sitting around. Uh, ba -ba -ba -ba. Derek Minner by decision is plus three seventy. Uh, not too bad of a spot. Again, he just needs to find these certain spots, these certain pockets to try to get his offense off uh, without getting taken down or getting clipped by one of these crazy shots. Uh, and I think that should be enough for him to get a decision here. But honestly, Cody, I want nothing to do with this fight. I'm, I'm just going to sit back and just watch this car crash or lack of car crash that we're going to be seeing this weekend. Do you have Do you have a better read on this fight? What, what are you leaning more so towards? Honestly, I think Ryan Hall wins the fight. I'm having a... Tr trouble gauging if it's going to be by decision or if it's going to be by inside the distance, likely the submission, I suppose, maybe not the TKO, but yeah, that, that is the prop side of things that I'm kind of struggling on. <clears throat> when I think about the matchup, what I like here is that Derek Minner is very one-dimensional in his approach, right? Dude has 26 professional wins, 22 submissions, one knockout. Hasn't knocked out a guy in eight years, right? So he doesn't really have much of a striking game to him. What he's able to do is bum rush opponents, take them to the ground, fish for five or six submission attempts, either stick one of them or completely gas out and die trying. So how do you think this fight's going to go down? Is he, is he going to bum rush Ryan Hall, try to take him to the ground, try to submit him? Good luck, man. That's not a winnable game plan. Is he going to stand with him? Not going to work. <clears throat> not only <clears throat> sorry. Not only is it not going to work because he's not a very good striker, 
But Ryan Hall's shown to just have like a very quirky, unorthodox approach to the stand-up game. Like he just kicks, 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 and then sits down flat on his ass. If Minner chases him to the ground, that's where Hall's theoretically going to be at his best. And if Minner doesn't fall into the ground, then it's going to be the same frustration that a lot of other opponents have faced. Look at Gray Maynard. Look at Darren Elkins. Look at when those guys fought him. Elkins got dropped twice by Ryan Hall because he's just got this unorthodox bounce in, bounce out, throw this hook kick, move away, throw the kick again. You rush in, sits down on his ass. It's very difficult to deal with. Now, when you look at uh, Derek Minner, you think, geez, 22 submission victories. Obviously, he's a great grappler. Well, not exactly true, right? So he's got eight submission losses. In fact, that's the majority of his recent losses. But Darren Elkins fight, second round finish. He gasses out in the second. He got TKO'd. The Grant Dawson fight. Oh, he had Grant Dawson in all sorts of nasty trouble. But Grant Dawson survived. And as soon as he did survive, the guy gassed out. He choked him out in the second. Herbert Burns only needed one. Kevin Kroom. Yes, that Kevin Kroom. You're sitting at home thinking to yourself, Kevin Kroom. Yes, correct. Ke Kevin Kroom, TKO'd him with elbows in the second round. What? But you're going to see a pattern here with the second round. Jordan Griffin, LFA's Jordan Griffin, not known for his grappling. Once again, another fight that Derek Minner had three or four nasty submission attempts tight. Jordan Griffin survived, and he himself submitted him with an arm bar in the second. Um, our boy Jesse Arnen, that fight with Hard Knocks back in the day, you know, actually did win the first round, but works him over in the first and slides in a tight little Darth choke in the second. He gasses out, and he gets submitted in the second. So I, I'm looking at Ryan Hall second round plus 500, Ryan Hall third round plus 1,000. And truthfully, the way I see this happening is it ends up just being a grappling match. Hall's going to catch him at some point, especially once he gets tired. If it doesn't hit the ground, I, I don't know. Are they really going to stand up and fight for 15 minutes? Like At some point, he's going to kick him in the face with something and then hopefully take his back. I don't know. Remember the Artem Lobov fight? Like, yeah, yeah, just take his back standing. I don't care. Just get on his back. Couldn't choke out Artem Lobov, but Lobov's the GOAT. This guy, you get on his back and he's tired. Like, he's given up submissions to far lesser guys. And I honestly think that what's his secondary path to victory? Strike and strike. Now, the last thing I want to mention is you, you brought up, you said, uh, it, generally gas is outside of the Charles Rosa fight. He is gassed in the Charles Rosa fight. The problem there is that Rosa has no offense off his back yeah. and pushes no pace. It's a problem that's cost Rosa in his last, what, three of his last four fights, I think. Almost um, the Justin James fight, too. <laughs> yeah, like, you know what I mean? Like, when he's on his back, he just he has an inability to get back up. He's not throwing up submissions, and it's a great spot to just rest. And if you look at that Minner fight, after the first round, his hands are up on James Krause, his head's down. Krause is, like, trying to pick up his head. He's gassing. He's basically just, like, just go do the exact same thing. Just take him down, line his guard. And that's all he does for the entire fight, take him down, line his guard. I would think with Hall, he's going to be trying to use the 50-50 position. He's going to be trying to set up a leg lock. He's going to create a scramble. That scramble creates transition, he's on your back. Then all of a sudden, he's going to be fishing for your neck. And the more scrambles that happen, I would think Minner will get tired. And uh, this is what Hall does. Like, he's the wizard for a reason. So he has a very weird one-dimensional style. It just so happens that they've given him a guy with a, with a pretty weird one-dimensional style that fits the narrative better for Hall. So I'm going to go with Hall, but because i got to go an official prop on it, the round two i'll take the round two at plus 500 instead of the round three at plus 1000 but maybe just a little sprinkle like paul says a little sprinkle on both of them and uh beyond that have fun with it yeah the the one that i did highlight was obviously round three hall plus 1000 in case that uh, ugly head rears itself once again for Derek minner and his gas tank 
but yeah, I largely agree with you what with your assessment for this fight. All right, let's move on to uh, a flyweight scrap now between Alex Perez and Matt Schnell. Uh, we got some chalk here on Perez, who's sitting at minus three twenty plus two sixty to return on Matt Schnell. Uh, obviously, Perez trying to bounce back from his title loss to uh, Davison Figueredo late last year. Um, you know, he tried going for the takedown. That's that was his path to victory in that fight, right? Implement his wrestling style, try to get Davison down and grind him out. Unfortunately, he caught himself in a guillotine. And I know a lot of people are going to be looking to write off Alex Perez because of that. But I kind of, I, I kind of rate him. I, I give him a slight pass because he was trying to implement his path to victory, right? Just as he did in the Formiga fight, instead of going for takedowns, knowing that Formiga is a wizard on the ground, he went out there and absolutely touched him up on the feet, obviously really uh, hurting him to the calf and then getting him out of there ending of that first round. Uh, but when he has that decided wrestling advantage, he uses it pretty emphatically. And I think he's going to have that here against Schnell. Schnell might be the slightly crisper boxer in a sense, but I don't think that he's going to be able to stop the takedowns here. And then he might be active off of his back at times but I'd be surprised if he's able to catch Perez off his back with anything there. Um, I, I like Perez in the spot. I actually even like Perez inside the distance. We've seen Schnell get finished a couple times now, and I do believe that Perez presents enough issues from him on top, whether it's passing guard, ground and pound, or even submission attempts, that he'll eventually be able to find a finisher against a guy like Matt Schnell. So instead of taking that minus 320, sure, go ahead, you can parlay it and stuff too, but I think the, the real money here is going to be on the inside the distance. I think it could be for both sides too, even if you want to take the under two and a half and and hope for a potential Schnell finish. I think that is live as well at plus 145. But I do have some pretty damn good confidence on the press side here around plus 185 for him to get inside, uh, to get a finish inside the distance here. So I'm going Perez inside the distance, plus 185. What's your thoughts on this fight? Yeah, I don't know if Perez submits him. So that made me like the TKO prop instead of plus 275. And yeah, I'm going to agree. I think Perez has got an excellent ability to go out here, potentially score himself a knockout win. I really like what this guy brings to the table. He really turned my head when he fought Jose Torres, who is a super touted amateur prospect, super touted professional. I mean, he was supposed to be a, a, one of these legitimate contenders. And fight metric, the fight lasts 3 minutes and 36 seconds. And fight metric recorded that he threw 160 uh, significant strikes. Landed 84 of them in three and a half minutes. Okay. Fucking insane. Yeah, at this point, because I thought he was a wrestler. He's a wrestler grappler. He's a Timo Yama guy. You know, yeah. he's a, one of these tough, durable guys. He's had some family members that fight. Like, he's just, he's grown up. He's about that life, right? Uh, and it was like, holy shit, man, this guy can strike. He knocked out Torres. I didn't see it coming. Torres was undefeated at the time. Then he then he fights Joseph Benavides. Uh, Might have been some As punches the behind the head. As yeah, the I know. Because well. he looked good. Yeah. He, he might have taken some punches behind the head. I don't know. Um, regardless, he's all looked awesome since then. His jiu-jitsu is good. You saw that in uh, the Jordan Espinoza fight. We got a quick first-round submission. Like Jordan Espinoza went three rounds at Tim Elliott. Tim Elliott was trying to submit him with a ton of good chokes, but you see where Perez is just heavy. You know, He takes you down, he hurts you. He's got great ground and pound. He opens up the submission, and he snatches it right away. You see your Formiga, his leg kick game was just spot on, man. Not only that, he would chop the leg, chop the leg, and then come over the top of the right hook, right? Uh, just just really backed up Formiga, hurt him, and knocks him out in the first round. At this point, he's got a schedule bet with Brandon Moreno. Moreno pulls out, and he gets tossed in with a short-notice Figueredo. He had like a week to prepare for the champion. Like That is a tough go, let's be honest. So you're right. I think some people have written him off, not the bookmakers. This is a pretty wide-out yeah. line, but I think there's a perception of like, yeah, he's not that good. I think he's a very solid talent. I think he's very well-rounded and brings a lot of things to the table. Matt Schnell, meanwhile, has four UFC losses. Three of them have come by knockout. Not only are they by knockout, but Rob Font, first-round knockout. Hector Sandoval, first-round knockout. 
Alexander Pantoja, first round knockout. Pantoja, more of a jiu-jitsu guy with hands. You saw he just he clipped him with the right hand, and it's like, boom, there's the overhand right. A move that obviously Perez is very effective with as well. Um, the the latter to the prior two, sorry, Rob Font, stand-up knockout, the one with Hector Sandoval, he's on the ground and it's just like a short little shot. And he's not just like spurt covers up, the ref stops it, like he's out. So yeah, I think Perez's ground and pound is going to be effective. I think his stand-up game is going to be effective. I think his jiu-jitsu is effective. I think he should be able to go out there and at some point catch him. So the money line is the money line. What can you do? It's pretty wide out. But plus 275 for a knockout victory? Jeez, that seems pretty decent to me. So that's the prop I like the most here. I love it. I love it. I love when I can convince. Well, I didn't have to convince you. You came up to the page, by yeah. yourself uh, to to have a flyway fight and finish inside the distance. Uh, I'm happy to hear that as well. But yeah, I'm right there with you. All right, let's move on to the next fight here. Uh, we have uh, Aaron Blanchfield going up against Miranda Maverick in a flyweight belt. In terms of odds, we're looking at minus 130 for Miranda Maverick, plus 110 for Aaron Blanchfield. And just like Maverick's last fight against Macy Barber, I'm kind of bummed that they're putting, to, putting them together so early in their career. Uh, I'm not saying that either of these women are going to turn out to be Max Holloway or Dustin Poirier, but I feel like it's kind of that vibe where we're getting them fighting early in their career and they might fight up once again later on in their career once they really start to shape out their their full game and, and possibly get closer to a title shot, which I think both women are going to be capable of. Uh, Maverick, uh, solid striker with a decent ground game as well. Uh, on the flip side, solid ground game from Aaron Blanchfield and an ever-improving striking game as we've been seeing over our last couple of fights. I've been loving what I've been seeing from Blanchfield, um, not even just the Sarah Alpar fight, but just even prior fights to that, like really blending in her strikes behind her takedowns because before she really just used to like shoot desperation takedowns, really try to get the fight to the ground. Then she decapitates Victoria Leonardo, and then she really starts to trust her striking after that, and then it's really paid off for her. Miranda Maverick, on the other end, she does a good job of kind of doing the same thing, right? She blends her takedowns very well behind uh, behind strikes, and I feel like whoever is able to do that more effectively here will more than likely get their hand raised. Um, I'd be surprised if we see a finish on either side. I know Maverick obviously has that win over uh, Liana Jojua where she was able to get the finish. And then obviously Blanchfield where she was able to get that uh, head kick knockout over over Leonardo. But I do see this fight going the full 50 minutes being pretty closely competitive. Uh, and the odds makers see it that way too. Minus 310 on the over two and a half. So no shit that we're going to see heavy chalk there. I'm actually going to be on the Blanchfield side though. I do like her output a little bit more. And I do think she has a little bit more upside uh, based on Maverick. I believe... A, a, a good portion of her success comes from her physicality as well. And that will only be able to get her so far. She is improving as well. You know, shout out to Mackin Semizer, uh, former UFC and WEC fighter who's really, uh, you know, taking the, the helm with her head coaching. But uh, I think they're going to struggle here a little bit. Again, it could be close. Hence why the odds are the way they are. I'm going Blanchfield. I'm going to go Blanchfield by decision as well, which is currently sitting at uh, plus 195. I like that spot. That's the way I'm going. I think if you take either side, just take the decision prop, and you're probably getting more bang for your buck. How are you feeling about this one? I have Blanchfield then at plus 200, but 195. <laughs> right? You got to take it. You got to get. Yeah, 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 that's exactly it. Honestly, I briefly flirted with the idea because at first I was just like, oh, yeah, close competitive fight, going the distance, both of them. I think these are two of the best prospects. Honestly, yeah. the UFC just gave Maverick Macy Barber. She should have won, sure, but... That was kind of like the two top prospects. But I've been on uh, high on Blanchfield for a while now since uh, her time in Invicta. She's just so young, man. Like, you talk about this Victoria Leonardo fight. She's like 20 years old. Like, yeah. she fought some legitimate competition in Invicta. And, again, you, you can just see, like, oh, oh, my God. Eventually, she's going to mature and she's going to be a pretty legitimate fighter. The, her camp initially took a fight 
on a week's notice against Norma Dumont at 135 pounds for her debut. That's how much faith they have. And Dumont's the one that pulled out, right? Yeah. So it's like they like what they see out of her. They know that she's ready to go. And even though she does show a young age still, I think she's developing uh, pretty rapidly. Maverick, meanwhile, I mean, I've been very high up on her as well. I mean, she looks like she's got the good. She's very well-rounded. Physically, in incredible shape. This girl's very strong, takes her strength and conditioning very seriously. Uh, she's she's strong in there. She's got good striking. She's got decent wrestling. The two things that she lacks is, one, I don't think she's great in the clinch, like as far as striking in the clinch. Macy Barber had her best success of the fight when she was able to make it a dirty grind inside of tight quarters, as well as when Macy Barber did get the takedown. I think she ended up having, like, two and a half minutes of top control over Miranda Maverick. So Blanchfield's grappling is legit, and it's tight. If she ends up getting in the same position where she can get Maverick to the ground, I think that she's going to have some rideout time, have some top control, have some top position, maybe some ground and pound here and there. As far as the, the fight stays standing and striking goes, maybe slight edge towards Maverick, but the volume's not quite there. I mean, I think that's something we saw in the Macy Barber fight. The first round, she looked good. The second round, it was actually 15 to 13, so the striking numbers had certainly tightened up, but we all scored it for Maverick. Wrong, I guess. And uh, and then in the third round, I mean, that's when Barber came alive. Now, Barber has proven to be a slow starter. She had the same thing against Alexa Grosso. Blanchfield, not a slow starter, so... Sarah Alpar, if you can believe this, because I'm sure you're not going to, is actually a wrestler, right? And Blanchfield <laughs> just tore right through her, man. She needed three takedowns. One in the first, one in the second, one in the third. Absolute domination since then. Now, Maverick is three times the fighter Sarah Alpar was. But, again, I think that the grappling in the in-tight quarters fighting is going to be towards Blanchfield. And that plus 200, I like it. So, I like the fight that goes the distance, but it's minus 275. So, I actually briefly flirted with the idea of, if I put $100 down on Miranda Maverick at plus 125 and $100 down on Blanchfield at plus 200, well, then if Miranda Maverick wins, I win a quarter unit, right? And uh, if Blanchfield will, double it up, right? But uh, I'm actually going to side with you. I think it's a dog or pass situation. I got Blanchfield. Tight fight, but uh, plus 200 for decision. I don't mind that. Yeah, close, close fight. I, I was really racking my brain to try to come to a conclusion on this fight. Ended up on the or on the Blanchfield side, and glad that you are reciprocating that thought as well. All right, let's move on to the next fight here. A middleweight scrap between Andre Munez and Eric Anders. We got minus 140 on Munez, plus 120 on Eric Fight Ready Anders, who's going to be uh, having his third uh, training camp, I believe, with those guys down in Arizona now. Uh, weird fight, right? Uh, Eric Anders had a very underwhelming performance last time around against Darren Stewart, where he still pulled pulled off a victory, but managed to accrue about eight minutes of control time with some clinch work and a, a, a takedown or two here and there that he was able to secure and, and really just grind out Darren Stewart. Uh, I doubt he wants to do that here against Munez. Munez is inviting him to get into the clinch and try to get this fight to the ground so that he can use his high-level BJJ and possibly snap another arm, just like he did to our, our legend and GOAT, uh, our, or Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu GOAT, if you want to call it, Jacare Souza, uh, a couple months ago. So big win for him there. He's riding high on that, but I think stylistically speaking, this is not a good fight for him. I think that Eric Anders, when taken down, does a good enough job in terms of getting back to his feet, and I think that will kind of nullify the success that Munez will have on the ground, and Munez has shown at times to be that guy that goes submission over position, and I wouldn't be surprised if he you know, if he does get on the ground, if he tries to get too overzealous looking for a finish of some sort, Eric Anders should be able to defend well enough to get back to his feet and get the fight back into his realm. I think I saw a headline earlier this week uh, about Eric Anders doing an interview, and the headline was, I'm looking to sprawl and brawl. 
Well, no shit, Eric Anders. <laughs> That's how you got to fight this fight. If he can keep this fight standing, I think he's the slightly better striker of the two. And he's obviously the stronger of the two. So that should obviously aid him in being able to kind of control where this fight goes. I like Anders here as the dog. Uh, I'd kind of be surprised if he finds the finish unless he like nukes him in the first round here. I could being I could see it being like a slow drawn out fight. Not similar to the Darren Stewart fight and the fact that that was more of a clinch grapple fight. I think this is more so him just trying to maintain his distance, sprawl and brawl, and just try to, you know, just, just get the judges on his side if this fight does end up going the full 15 minutes. So I like Eric Anders, uh, plus 120, don't mind that line. But even his prop here to go to a decision at plus 255, I don't mind that either. I'm going to Anders' decision. How are you seeing this one? Yeah, you know what? This one's confusing to me because I want to believe that Eric Anders is, in fact, a live underdog here. I agree with a lot of your assessment. I think that he's the stronger of the two, and he does have the type of takedown defense that if he's just a sprawl and brawl, then that's a certain path to victory. He's a much better technical boxer. He's a much better striker than Andre Muniz. Muniz got a very limited striking game, and uh, I'm not 100% sold on his chin. Now, Anders only has one knockout win in the UFC, and it was Benicio Morera, so like, it does, really doesn't say anything about him. But uh, yeah, like, it's a dangerous fight if it's to stay standing. What we need is for Andre Muniz to get this fight to the ground as quick as possible. And if that doesn't materialize, it becomes dangerous. But Anders is really hard to get a beat on, man. I mean, you talked about it's his third camp with Fight Ready MMA. Well, the first camp was the Darren Stewart fight the first time. He looked yeah. awesome, dude. He looked awesome. And then he got himself a no contest when he kneed him in the face on the ground, right? But he looked awesome. Then they just rebooked the same fight. He's at Fight Ready. That's his second camp of Fight Ready. He looked awful. He looked god-awful. So I was buying into the improvements, but yeah, I'm not really so sure. I mean, I think he's just, he is who he is. Uh, the guy's been a career bust. I mean, he was a guy that was the captain, one of the team captains on um, the Alabama football team. They won a national title. You know, a bunch of his buddies went to the NFL. He flirted with the idea to go to the NFL. Instead, come to MMA. Like, talk about freak athlete. Talk about great potential and he just never really lived up to it he's got super low output like he never lets his hands go he spends a lot of time chasing around his opponent just kind of like staring at them the knockouts haven't materialized his ground game so so his cardio doesn't seem to be all that good you know again i got question marks and then low key he's now 34 years old like he's not getting any younger so as much as i want to believe he's going to be getting better i just i just don't know now here's another tricky thing i'm having trouble getting a bit on right is that the first fight with Darren Stewart was at 185, and he looked awesome. The second fight with Darren Stewart was at 205, and he looked like shit. And then this fight's back down at 185. So does cutting 20 pounds help out a 34-year-old? No. However, if you do roll it back, the last time he fought at middleweight, he definitely did look a lot better. And maybe part of the reason he looked lethargic against Darren Stewart was he's just carrying around some extra weight. Like, I, I just don't know. What I do know, though, is Darren Stewart managed to take him down twice in that last fight. And if Andre Muniz even takes him down one single time, he's going to be in a world of shit. I know he's never been submitted, but neither had Jacare Souza, right? So I think this guy's operating on a different level. At some point, the fight hits the ground. When it does hit the ground, I expect Muniz to lock something up. And Muniz by submission is plus 160. So that would be the avenue I'd be looking at, if, if anything. I can see it being a greasy fight. People might want to pass on. But as far as where I see the best value... Uh, I would think the fight at some point does hit. Like, what's Eric Anders' career takedown defense? Like, is it even? It's like seventy nine percent, something like that. That's pretty good, to be honest with you. Mm. Um, when I watched his last fight against Stewart, the takedown attempts not like a beautiful, clean take. It's just like he gets tripped to the ground, right? Uh, I'm expecting if he was to get tripped to the ground here. Yeah, he's got seventy six percent takedown defense. 
But Darren Stewart, non-wrestler, right? He's a British striker. Fought him twice. Christoph Jocko, he's a Polish Muay Thai practitioner. Gerald Mearshart, is a hell of a grappler, but he's definitely not a wrestler. Vinicius Moreira is a can. Khalil Roundtree's a striker. Elias Theodorou's... Uh, I guess that <laughs> Elias was... He's high. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Jago Santos is a straight-up banger. Tim Williams was yeah. actually beating him, and Tim Williams took him down twice. Yeah. Leoto Machida is a striker. Marcus Perez is a bit of a grappler, not a wrestler. Grappler, he took him down twice as well. And then Rafael Natal is also a bum uh, and a grappler. So, I don't know. Like, I'm not going to go ahead and classify Andre Muniz as a wrestler because he's not. But he does have at least that, that grappling element. And so far, the guys that can grapple, whether it be, you know, just a decent amount of them, they've been able to at least force him down at least a time or two. And that might be all Andre Muniz needs. So, I've just been so disappointed with Eric Anders, and especially that last fight. We can only base them off their last fight at the end of the day. And you've got Anders barely squeaked by, barely squeaked by. I was dying because he kicked his ass so handily the first time for the no contest, and they rebooked it. It was like minus 145 Anders. I was all over Anders. He barely squeaked by, man. I was dying. Uh, it was a bad performance. Meanwhile, Andre Muniz is on a solid little roll here. Submitted Taylor Johnson on the Contender Series, and then since then, the win over Antonio Arroyo. Hindsight doesn't look too good. But uh, Bartos Sabinski submits him like nothing, and then obviously picking up a big, big quality victory over a guy like Jacare Souza with an inverted arm bar. Like, what do you think is going to happen to Eric Anders if he's in a compromising situation? I think you could catch him. So plus 160, that's where I'm going. I do want to shout out my guy, Mark Andre uh, Andrade here. Over two and a half is currently sitting around plus 140. I don't mind that. I really don't mind that. But again, the, if there is a finish, I do believe uh, you are correct in the fact that it could possibly be that uh, Andrew Moon is by sub at plus 140. Not too bad either. All right. <clears throat> Let's move on to the next fight here. Bruno Silva versus Jordan Wright. Uh, we got minus 345 on Silva, plus 285 on Jordan Wright. But I think the odds that most people are intrigued by are obviously the under one and a half, which currently sits at minus 170. Uh this fight should be some shit, right? Like, I'd be surprised if it's one of those where, like, both guys respecting power, each other's power too much and we see them staring at each other for 15 minutes. I feel that, though, uh, at a certain point, one of these guys is going to clip each other. Personally, uh, yeah, sure, Bruno Silva should win. Bruno Silva KO. That's more than likely the, the result of this fight. That's currently sitting at minus 165, which you don't often see when you see a KO prop that juiced up, but that's what a lot of people are seeing here. Instead of taking that, personally, I, I like the fight doesn't go to decision. Again, I know it's like minus 400, chalky as well, but I feel as though uh, we're going to see a finish regardless here. Jordan Wright has always been the butt of the joke. You know what I mean? Since like his stint on the contender series, we got knocked out quickly by uh, Fluffy Hernandez. People just kept ragging on him for like the can crusher title that he was able to proclaim by beating up all these bums on the Alaska FC scene and all that stuff. And then he did have a pretty solid win on the regional scene against Gabriel Checo before coming over to the UFC. But uh, I feel like he's slowly starting to uh, move away from that as he's starting to knock out people and starting to get some victories. I think people are going to start to respect him a little bit more. And he can pull it off this weekend, right? I wouldn't even count out the possibility of him get, of him looking to get this fight to the ground and kind of control Bruno Silva on top and try to find that finish from there as we've seen that kind of chink in Silva's armor uh, in the past, although he always manages to survive, get back to his feet, and then knock his opponents out, and that's exactly what could happen uh, end up happening here as well. Regardless, I'm expecting violence in this fight. Go ahead and parlay the fight. doesn't go to decision, honestly, but I'm going with uh, Bruno Silva by KO. I think the round prop may be better than just taking him straight up uh, by KO at minus 165. Uh, Silva in round one is currently sitting at plus 120. 
Oh, okay. Uh, it's decent. Again, we've seen him get late finishes as well. Silver in round three is plus 850. But man, like, again, both these guys, it's going to be a car crash. Again, Jordan Williams is, or Jordan uh, Wright is very uh, explosive and 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 has some agility about him too. The way he closes distance with that power is very uh, decepting at times. And I feel as though uh, he could, you know, walk Silva onto something here. So I wouldn't be surprised if Silva gets knocked out himself. But I am actually going to go with the Brazilian here. I think he ends up finding the knockout. KO, minus 165, whatever, fight doesn't go to decision. I feel that covers all angles here. How do you see this one going down? Yeah, I, I got to go with Silva for sure, man. I mean, he's got a couple things going his way. First of all, if they're just going to get into a straight-up gunfight, he's showing up with the bigger guns. I mean, he's got 18 KO victories and 21 <laughs> career wins. Like, I was telling Paul yesterday, like, other than Melvin Manhoff, nobody rocks a KO percentage like that, you know? He, he's got heavy, heavy hands. What I like about him beyond that is not like he's just can crushing. Gennady Kovalev, solid Russian talent, knocked down the first round. Alexander Shlomenko is like a goat over in Russia, former Bellator champion, very durable guy. Uh, it's a savage knockout. Like he puts a prolonged, they gave Shlomenko every opportunity to recover. He did not recover. It was a nasty, nasty knockout. The Artem Frolov fight, you know, Frolov is undefeated, 11 0, knocks him out as well. So, as far as level of competition goes, he's fought in good competition. He's been able to go out there and score quality KO victories. Beyond that, when we talk about oh, Shlomenko and Frolov, or uh, Gennady Kovalev and all these guys first round, he knocks out Frolov in the fourth, right? He carries that power through. It's a championship fight for the M1 title. And to knock out a guy in the fourth round as a big power puncher, that's super impressive. A lot of guys can go out there and get the first round KO. But again, to be able to carry that as you're tired, very, it's very special, really. So he knocks out Wellington Tournament again in the first round, sure. But what do we see in the Andrew Sanchez fight? This guy's power carries from minute one to minute 15. So we know he has big power. I'm going to say better than Jordan Wright. Jordan Wright's pulled off a couple KO victories, sure. But, I mean, I don't know that I'm putting Jamie Pickett on the same level. I'm certainly not putting Ike Villanueva, cut stoppage. Uh, I, I'm not putting them on the same level. Gabriel Checo, gas bag. Good jiu-jitsu, real good jiu-jitsu. But uh, this is not Chael Sutton's submission underground, dog. It's an MMA fight. and. Gabriel Checo's just never really gotten over the hump as far as being a, a mixed martial artist. What I'm getting at, though, is Jordan Wright has never seen the third round in his entire career. All of his wins have come inside two. All of his losses have come inside two. So he's fought in more of the cans. I'm going to give the power advantage to Silva. And then you got to look at Silva's got six career defeats. He's never been knocked out. He did get TKO'd on the Ultimate Fighter once upon a time by Vitor Miranda, who, by the way, was a Brazilian K1 standout, like probably one of the better strikers at Brazil. People remember him a little bit from the UFC. He was in his 40s when he was fighting in the UFC. Dude's like a striking madman. So, yeah, I guess theoretically I can't say he's never been knocked out. But in his six career pro defeats, he's been submitted five times and has lost the decision. We know that chicken is armor, like you mentioned. We know the problem with him is his grappling. It's not the stand-up battle. And Jordan Wright's going to, I think, present him a stand-up battle. And at some point, Bruno's going to catch him, and I think Bruno's going to knock him out. Wright does have some submission victories on his record, sure, but... What's his wrestling like? Because people will say, well, Andrew Sanchez took him down. He, Andrew Sanchez is a D1 All-American, two-time D1 All-American. Like, there's no comparison here. Jordan Wright's not a wrestler of his nature. And as far as, well, what about submitting him goes? I mean, he's been submitted five prior times. I'm just not putting Wright on that level. He's, and by the way, the last time he was submitted, Moise Ribon, who's uh, the Phuket top team jiu-jitsu coach and is an absolute legend down there in Southeast Asia, and it was six years ago. The guy's learned a lot. He's developed a lot. And now his game revolves around, if I do get taken down, stay calm, stay patient. And when I get back up, put them hands on people. That'll be the problem for Wright. 
Right to knockout, lost to Anthony Fluffy Hernandez, as you mentioned, 40 seconds. It was literally like the first, oh, I suppose Fight Metric said that he landed 10 punches, but he hit him and instantly you saw this guy hurt. Now, the Joaquin Buckley fight's a real interesting one to me because he's beating Joaquin Buckley for the first three and a half, four minutes of the first round. And great uh, linear movement, like you're saying. I mean, he does look like he's got, I think he comes from a karate base and he's got good footwork. He is fast. He is quick-footed for sure. But the second Buckley hits him with that right hand, he's done, dude. He goes back to his corner, and he's, like, out. Like, they said he was stuttering in his corner between rounds. His, I don't know why they sent him back out, but then he gets sent back out and got knocked out in 18 seconds by the very first punch that landed in that second round because his brain just never quite recovered. That's going to be a serious problem against Bruno Silva. So you got a guy that's got weaker firepower, a way weaker chin, has never been to the third round against a guy with 18 KO wins, on a seven-fight winning streak, all legitimate guys, uh, can finish you in the second round, third round, fourth round if need be. Like, I got to think he catches him at some point. So the over-under one and a half, you would think the under one and a half, but it's minus 170, whereas the Bruno Silva, uh, I think you said minus 165. I got a minus 180. What can you do? Um, you know, points here, points there. Like, get 165 if you can, obviously. But, yeah, it was 10 points off from the under, so I just said, you know what, I'd rather have him because he can, might knock him out later in the second. He might knock him out in the third. But at some point, I think Bruno Silva does knock him out. So I got Bruno Silva inside the distance, more specifically by TKO. Uh, but anywhere between minus 165 to minus 180, I guess. I love it. I love it. Should be fun. Can't wait to see that one go down. All right. <clears throat> Next up, we got a heavyweight scrap between Augusto Sakai and Tai Tuivasa. In terms of odds, Pretty much a pick them here. Uh, I see a little bit of money, it seems like, coming in on the Tai Tuivasa side, but still minus 115 and minus 110s is what I'm seeing across the board here. Personally, I've never really been a bad fan of Tai Tuivasa. I, you know, he he's had his power that's kind of bailed him out of bad spots at times. He does have a, a, a decision victory or two under his belt inside the UFC as well, but I just don't know if he has the chops to go out there and beat a more complete fighter in Augusto Sakai, in my opinion here. Obviously, it is heavyweight. We saw Augusto Sakai have some decent success, obviously, against Jairzinho Rosa's strike until he got flatlined at the end of that first round. Uh, and that could potentially happen here against Tai Tuivasa as well, which is my concern in terms of playing Sakai here. But if if we're ruling out knockouts, like if you have uh, one uh, access to those odds, I, I want to see if I can pull it up here on best fight odds where it's like, uh, if it ends inside the distance, it's a push decision only. If you can take uh, Sakai, I think that's a damn good spot as well. Uh, I just can't. Oh, uh, uh, actually, scorecards, no action. That's a, that's a different bet. But yeah, uh, either way, I, I like Sakai here. I do think we'll see a little bit more output from him from the outside. Has a decent kick up the middle that I believe he should be able to keep Tuivasa on the outside with. Uh, and then hopefully, you know, evade some of those big shots. Maybe mix in a little bit of grappling if he knew what was best for him. But again, that's not really his style. He doesn't really look to go out there and ground guys, especially if he has to worry about knockout power on the other side. Sure, he has knockout capabilities of his own, but I'd be surprised if he's willing to engage in those firefight exchanges with a guy like Tai Tuivasa, uh, which is why I kind of lean on the side of Sakai here. As long as he's conscious, I feel as like this is I feel like this is his fight to win. I'd be surprised if uh Tuivasa shows more on a minute-by-minute -minute basis for the judges to actually score rounds for his side here. So I do like uh Augusto Sakai here. Sakai by decision, uh, I believe is sitting at uh, ba, 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 ba. Sakai decision is uh, plus 280 right now. I don't mind that spot here. Uh, even the fight goes to decision. 
uh, sitting at minus two or sorry, plus one seventy five. I love that as well. We, you know, every time we get a heavyweight fight, everybody likes to look at. Let's just bet the under here. More than likely, they're going to knock each other out. But I, I, I feel as though the way that these guys are matched up, similar to how Augusto was lined up against Blagoy Ivanov we're going to get a more drawn out fight where we don't really get uh, a whole lot of action out of these guys, but more so just trying to stay disciplined more so from the Sakai side and tied to Ivasa trying to close that distance and trying to find that knockout blow. But if I were to put money on this fight, it's going to be the fight goes to decision, the over and Sakai by decision. Like I said, how are you seeing this one go down? Yeah, I completely agree. Although I didn't want to get greedy. So I just took the over one and a half and it sits at minus 135, which I thought was a very fair price tag. I think you're getting a little, a lot of recency bias. People look at Tai Tui Voss and they're like, well, man, it's not going to go over one and a half. His last three fights are all first round knockouts. Like, man, this guy's a finisher. Okay, fair. So Greg Hardy fight. Both guys could have got knocked out in that one. Like it was a sloppy uh, jerk that went both ways. <laughs> And then Harry Hunsucker, come on, he's no longer with the promotion for good reason, and first-round knockout. And then Stefan Struve, no longer with the promotion, it's a first-round knockout. So, yeah, I, I don't think I'm going to classify those guys in the same categories in Augustus Sakai. Sakai, meanwhile, he's not really known for his power as well. Like, if you look at his wins, uh, Blagoy Ivanov by, uh, on a split decision, Andrei Arlovsky on a split decision, he took, he took 14 minutes to take out Chase Sherman, like, he's not really like a one-hitter quitter in his own right. I mean, they're heavyweights, and they're both big boys, so certainly a KO could materialize. But, yeah, I would think someone's going to get tired and sloppy before that happens. That all happens after that over one and a half. So over one and a half at minus 135, that's what I'd go with. Um, talking about recency bias as well with Augusto Sakai. So his fight with Alistair Overeem, he wins the first three rounds. Like, he, if this is a three-round fight, he wins the fight and would have looked really good doing it. It just it went to deeper waters for the first time in his career, and he wasn't ready for it. And obviously, his gas tank let him up, and his ground game let him up. Overeem takes him down and finishes him off uh, early in the fifth round after dominating him in the fourth. So this only being a three-round fight, like, yeah, let's write that out of there. It's, oh, he got knocked out. is late, you know? The, a three-round fight, he wins that. The next fight with the Orozino Rosenstruck, the guy's got a tremendous amount of power. Like, he's one of those guys that does very much have the death touch. So it looks bad on paper. You've been knocked out in your last two fights. That looks bad for sure. You're taking on a guy that's knocked out his last three opponents all in the first round. It looks bad, but it's just optics because I'm more inclined to go the your route of thinking, whereas just because they're heavyweights and just because it looks like it could be a banger doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be that exciting fight that everyone's expecting. It could be one of those bog of heavyweight fights where Tui Vasa doesn't throw a ton of output, and he's got lackluster cardio. As Sakai, meanwhile, he's I like his output, but he's super hittable, and that becomes a problem against these heavy hitters, which Tui Vasa is. So he's going to mind his P's and Q's and, and approach this fight a little more uh, on the safe side. He's been knocked out in his last two fights. Tui Vasa, meanwhile, if he just goes berserk rage mode, I don't know, maybe Sakai finishes him later on in the second, uh, or he catches Sakai dies trying. Either way, I would feel like my best route here is that over one and a half, minus 135. You can see the fight going either way. I think I would lean towards Augusto Sakai, gun to my head pick. But uh, as far as the prop goes and what I like the most about this particular fight would be over one and a half, minus 135. I love it. I love it. Finally, a, a fight goes to decision that we can agree upon, even at heavyweight here. Uh, all right, let's move on to the next fight here. We got Dominic Cruz going up against Pedro Munoz uh, in terms of odds. A little bit of money coming in on Pedro Munoz over the last couple of days. Uh, I see him up to minus 120. Uh, Dominic Cruz, obviously, at plus 100. Pretty much a pick-em fight if we, if we want to call it that. Um, 
honestly a little bit surprised at the amount of love that Pedro Munoz is getting out there. Uh, I, I get it. I get the angle. The leg kicks are there. Absolutely. We saw Suhudo do it effectively, and people are thinking if Suhudo can do it, probably Pedro could do it as well. I just don't think it's that simple, though. I think that, like, I, I spoke to somebody kind of close to the fight-ready camp, and they're just saying, like, they did certain movements to kind of bring out that leg kick, and they all uh, they almost seem to, like, know as soon as they do a certain movement, Cruz is going to move this certain way, and they're going to be able to land that kick effectively. Is Pedro going to be as ready for something like that? Is he going to be able to set up traps? Because he doesn't really strike me as that guy that that can do it effectively like we saw Aljamain Sterling I'll point him from the outside for 15 minutes while eating leg kicks but was still able to get his offense off but I feel like uh, Dominic Cruz should be able to do the same thing thing here maybe feign some takedowns he can maybe even land out land a takedown or two just to keep things a little bit different just to mix it up and keep Pedro Munoz on his toes I get the angle from both sides but honestly I'm more so on the Dominic Cruz side here and I think it's absolutely insane of anybody to be betting the Dominic Cruz money line when you got close to plus 200 on him to win by decision because that's more than likely his path to victory in this fight well it's in every one of his fights right I think the last time he finished somebody was Takeya Mizugaki when he came back after such an extended layoff but since then decisions outside of getting knocked out by Henry Cejudo obviously but I do think that this is a prime spot for Cruz to go out there and give us classic Cruz kind of do his little dance around, uh, faint for some takedowns, like I'm saying, uh, get some output and some volume going, uh, and kind of get Pedro Munoz whiffing at air. Maybe similar to the, the Frankie Edgar approach, right? Frankie, say what you want, whether he deserved to win that Munoz fight or not. He implemented a good enough game plan that the judges actually scored it in his favor, and I feel like we could get the same thing here from Dominic Cruz. If Pedro is successful with the, the kicks and he's able to slow down uh, Cruz, then yeah, obviously he's going to have uh, success and he might even be able to find a knockout because he does throw with a, a ton of power, as we know. But I, I don't know, man. As something in my gut is just saying Cruz takes this fight. I'm taking the decision prop. Personally, I took, money, uh, took plus 185. Uh, that's the way that I'm going to be going for this fight. Bring me back down to earth. Even me out here. Are you on the Pedro side, Cruz side, and then obviously what's your favorite pop in this fight? Oh, sorry. Last one I'll say, the overs here, right? I do think this goes to a decision. I do think that we see, uh, uh, you know, a judge's decision no matter who gets their hand raised, but I'm going to be leaning with the Cruz side more so than not. How do you feel about this one? Okay, so as far as the fight goes, the distance, minus 185, I love it. I absolutely love it. Pedro Munoz has never been finished in his career, right? So he's got cast iron durability. And, you know, you can't say, well, who's he fought? I mean, Jose Aldo, Frank Yeager, Jim Rivera, Aljamain Sterling, Cody Garbrandt, Brian Carraway was pretty tricky. You know, John Dodson, ungodly power in his hands, beat Rob Font. Like, okay, so clearly he's fought in the creme de la creme, and his chin checks out. Obviously, his submission defense checks out. High-level Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt. The flip side, that, side to that with Dominic Cruz. Dominic Cruz has been finished one time in the last 14 years. And it was if it wasn't for Sigs and Booze, he may not have ever been finished in 14 years. So I don't think you can call his question, his durability into question as well. Uh, what, what seemingly prevents Pedro Munoz from getting over that hill from being a good fighter to a great fighter is a 65 inch reach. I mean, he comes up short on a lot of his punches. He finds it uh, very difficult to close the pocket, especially against mobile opponents. You brought up the Aljamain Sterling fight. He was a fish out of water in the Sterling fight. Way too fast, way too mobile, and just ate him up with a jab from the outside. In many ways, you can see Dominic Cruz trying to replicate a similar game plan. But Cruz's old man knees, I say that not because he's old, but because he physically got them out of a cadaver. So that guy might have been old. Um, 
his old man knees, I don't know that he's going to just be as mobile for 15 minutes as an Aljamain Sterling. Now, if he fights in the same way he fought Casey Kinney, you're right. He's got a lot of good success here, right? Kinney came forward for the most part, came up short on a lot of the shots, and you had Dominic Cruz mixing a couple takedowns here or there and largely just control the action, beat him to the punch. You can make an argument that Dominic Cruz won 30-27. You can make an argument that Casey Kinney might have won the second round. Uh, regardless, I don't think it should have been a split decision. I thought that was a good performance for Dominic Cruz. With Pedro, though, you got to deal with the leg kicks. you got to deal with you know even more forward pressure. He's got shorter punches for sure, but he's going to be swinging. He's going to be getting in your face. And so I love Fight Goes the Distance, minus 185. I think regardless who wins, this thing's going to go 15 minutes. But I, I, I want to lean towards Pedro Munoz's aggressiveness, come forward style, and try to mix in the heavier strikes more than Dominic Cruz's uh, you know, peacock, flashy footwork, hit you with a jab, get out of dodge, right? This is going to come down to the, the judges. Who's judging it? Who are the two of the three guys? And they want got to be on your side of things because, yeah, you can see someone who says, well, I like the touch and go approach as opposed to someone who likes forward aggression, right? Um, I think people will probably be upset no matter how this one ends. It's going to go to decision. Some people will think Cruz won. Some people think that Pedro won. I'm just hoping that the judges are going to go with that forward pressure and forward aggression. So same thing with uh, Dominic Cruz versus Casey Kinney. How did any judge come up with Casey Kinney won the fight? How did somebody score the fight for him? It doesn't really make any sense. But it's because Cruz is backpedaling, and some guys just don't like that, right? So it's a very subjective game when you're going to decision. Like you'd rather have someone who's just going to ice this fool or dominate for, for 30-27, right? And in Pedro's case... I don't know. Like Jose Aldo was able to dominate him across the board, right? But that's Jose Aldo. Like I don't think Cruz is at that. I don't know. Why didn't they just book Jose Aldo versus Dominic Cruz? That's what I want to see. <laughs> I <would love> <laughs> so I can bet Jose Aldo. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I it's a close fight. You're leaning towards uh, Dominic Cruz. I don't blame you whatsoever. I can see the path of victory for him. I'm going to lean towards Pedro Munoz regardless. Fight goes the distance. Minus one ninety five. Sounds chalky. To me, it just seems like that's that's the play. I love it. I love it. Glad we're kind of on the same page there as well. Yeah, it, it comes down to who's judging that fight. Are they going to judge Pedro Munoz moving forward and possibly swing it at air and eating counters or the other way around, right? It it goes both ways here. So I'm looking forward to seeing how that one plays out. Shout out to our guy, Jared Carrickson, uh here saying, I really want to see Tuivasa do another shoe beer chug. Probably one of my favorite comments of all time, considering we all know what it's actually called. But shoe beer chug just, just has a different ring to it compared to a shoe itself. <laughs> but let's move on to the next fight here. Uh, I believe, yes, we are at the prelim headliner now, the 10th fight of the night. Uh, also, just a reminder, 5.30 p.m. Eastern start time for the prelims uh, on Saturday. So a little bit earlier than we're used to uh, for pay-per-view cards. Uh, but yeah, that's due to the fact that we got 15 fights coming up here. All right, next up. We got Josh Emmett finally making his return after his fight of the night performance against Shane Burgos last time around. He's going up against Dan Ige. In terms of odds, uh, we're currently looking at minus 155 for Josh Emmett and plus 135 the return on Dan Ige. Now, uh, Josh Emmett actually opened up as a minus 225 favorite. And then just recently, we've been seeing money come in on Dan Ige, bringing that line down closer to minus 160. And uh, 
I kind of get it, right? You got a year and a half layoff, uh, an injury that Josh Emmett was obviously dealing with. And then he just revealed that uh, the, the the media scrum a couple of days ago saying that he had to deal with uh, a passing in his family, two passings actually, or two deaths in his family, uh, his brother, and I think one of his grandparents as well. And it seemed to hit him pretty hard. Uh, got to believe that's going to help, uh, you know, fuel his motivation going into this fight, trying to fight in honor of them. That's just an external factor as to why I think he should win this fight. Uh, I, you know, I, I did pick Shane Burgos against him last time around, but man, Shane Burgos' striking defense is absolutely dog shit, eating every single punch that uh, it seemed that Josh Emmett was throwing out there, which is why Josh Emmett was obviously able to get his hand raised that night. Personally, I feel like Dan Ige has always been an overachiever. Like, I, I just feel like when he gets to those big spots, like obviously you saw him in his last two main event performances, he comes up short, but like, Beating guys like Mursad Bektik and, and some of the other wins that he's been getting, I feel like it's a bit of an overachieving moment. I feel like he's a decent fighter, solid gatekeeper, but there's fighters that he's going out there and beating that I feel like he shouldn't. And I feel like Josh Emmett is one of those guys that should be able to kind of implement that heavy striking approach, landing the bigger, better shots, maybe even mixing in a couple of takedowns or even fainting takedowns, similar to what I was saying with Dominic Cruz here, because we know Emmett can obviously take fights to the ground if he needs to. But he likes to sling them, sling that leather, right? He likes to stay on the feet and really try to knock his opponent out. But Ige is very difficult to put out, very durable, can take a shot. And, uh, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if he eats everything that uh, Emmett throws at him this weekend. I, I like, I, I am leaning the, uh, the, the Emmett side here, and I'm actually leaning him by decision as well which is currently sitting at plus 165. Uh, the over two and a half and minus 190, I don't think is a bad spot either. If there is a finish, I think it comes from Ige knocking out Emmett, as we've seen Emmett obviously flatlined in the past. Uh, and Ige has some, you know, under uh, underrated power as well. The guy really throws with a bunch of heat when he's able to land that perfect shot. Just ask Gavin Tucker. I'm not sure if he's still uh, woken himself up yet. But uh, yeah, I like Emmett here. I like Emmett by decision. Um, how are you feeling about this one? And do you think Emmett gets his hand raised after nearly a year and a half off? I uh, mean, I don't know. Like, this is a spot where Dan Ige has cost me a little bit because I, I did back him against Korean Zabi and I did back him against Calvin Cater. It's not like he's not in the fights. I mean, especially by the numbers, it's relatively close. The striking is relatively close, but he's not physically all that strong. Like, outside of knocking Gavin Tucker, he doesn't really seem to get these guys respect in there. A lot of people think he lost the Edson Barbosa fight, but he's got that hustle. That's why he won the Barbosa fight. Just keeps coming, right? He's got a great chin, he's got some solid durability. And the cater fights a five-rounder. So I don't think he went balls to the walls. I think he tried to space it out a little bit and took a beating in the process. The Chang Sung Jung fights a five-rounder. Much of the same, you know. It's a prolonged beating over the course of 25. Going back to a three-round affair for Dan Ige, I think, is going to be key here because he needs to go out there and push a pace on Josh Emmett. Josh Emmett, for as explosive as he is and as heavy-handed as he is and has a hell of a career highlight reel, really, a couple things working against him here is, first of all, he's, he's 36 years old. Some point he's going to start to slow down. Sometime at some point that speed's not going to be quite there. And with Dan Ige, I mean, the guy's full time out of Extreme Couture in Las Vegas. He trains with the absolute best guys. He's still he's not young, but I mean, he's still getting better. I think he could shows up in shape, ready to go. I think that he's uh, going to be able to at least take this into some deeper waters and push a pace. Now with Emmett, here's the other thing, right? He's coming off a year and a half long absence since the Shane Burgos fight. Now, if you remember, he loses to Jeremy Stevens and he takes a year off and he comes back to fight Michael Johnson and he looked awful in the Michael Johnson fight. He threw something like 20 significant strikes through three, three rounds and then knocked Johnson out in the third. He was down two rounds. The corner was yelling at him like, you need to physically do something. Go do something. So 
Yes, in that Shane Burgos fight, he throws, he lands what, 124 significant strikes. It's everything that he's throwing is landing, and everything that's landing is hurting Burgos. It's a crazy war. He's got crazy good output there. But I'm thinking him coming off his year long, year and a half long absence, 36 years old, he might not come out here looking to throw that many punches. He might come out a little more conservative and allow Ige to maybe work his way back into it ever so slightly. So I don't mind the fight goes the distance, minus 165. We've seen Ige eat the kitchen sink and roll on. Meanwhile, Emmett, I don't think he's chinny. I think he can take a decent punch as well. Uh, it was going to be volume that's going to win the fight for Ige. And if Emmett wins it, it's going to be the bigger punches, but I don't think he knocks him out. So if fight goes the distance, minus 165. But I got a feeling that Ige by decision, plus 250. It's a nice looking price, plus 250, obviously. But uh, you just got to go out there and hustle this guy up. You're not going to be able to take him down, I don't think. If you did take him down, don't know that he's going to have a ton of success. He is a BJJ black belt, but Emmett's just got powerful hips. He'll scramble, get back up. It's being able to just go out there and outland him. And Ige's got fast hands. He should be able to do it. I'm going to give him a pass. His losses are to the best boxer, not the best boxer, top three boxer in the division, Calvin Cater, right? And because Max Holloway made him definitely look like he won the best boss in the division. And, uh, and then Korean Zombie, like, you know, one of the better strikers in the division. So if you give him a pass there, Emmett is just big power, big knockdown, right? That's his thing. His thing's not necessarily that really crisp, great technique, cutoff angles. You know, I, I can I see Ige making this one a, a close fight. And if it makes it a close fight and Ali can slip the judges a few bucks, we're looking at it gave by decision, and now I'm going to look at that plus 250. I like it. I like it. Should be a fun one, and hopefully we see Josh Emmett somewhat return to form because I feel like if he's really on, he could definitely be a force in this featherweight division. All right, that's a wrap on the prelims. Uh, shout out to the 315 live viewers that we currently have. Seems like this is a great time slot for people to actually uh, tune in and watch it with us live. Um, make sure you guys hit that like, hit that subscribe, and then show my guy Cody some love as well. Uh, we have his uh, YouTube channel in the description below as well. You guys can go out there and check his latest documentary on Harold Howard, Canada's last action hero. Make sure you guys go check that out. I believe you dropped it up about two weeks ago do you have anything in the works right now in terms of that type of uh, content coming out yeah yeah i actually got one that i'm gonna hopefully release the next week there's no ufc so not next week but the week after that and then i'd like to release maybe one more during the holidays so that people got i think we got three out maybe have five all together and uh yeah man I, I love working on those i mean it's a lot easier to just sit here with the microphone and just talk and not have to put viz and music and this and that but uh yeah there's there's a lot of good stories that need to be told right you are a damn good editor as well. I can def definitely tell you that because that shit looks like some Netflix type of documentary stuff. I really enjoy watching those when you do the drop them. And then obviously he drops the Bellator breakdowns and some of the B-League stuff as well. So make sure you guys go check out Cody. All right. A lot of you have been waiting and hounding me in the DMs. I see you guys in my Twitter DMs saying, what the hell is the announcement? What are you trying to announce? Let's, let's not waste any more time. Here you guys go. There you guys go. The Deadlock Podcast finally being announced here. It's been a long time coming. 
anytime I go on Clint's podcast and vice versa, everybody is like, we love you guys together. Please do a fucking show together. And that's exactly what's happening. January 5th, we're going to be doing our first show. It's going to be a bi-weekly MMA talk show. We're just going to shoot the shit. We're going to talk about everything that's been happening in MMA. Uh, we got some cool, fun little segments to be involved uh, to involve as well. We're going to have some people that we're going to have uh, coming in and, and interviewing them as well. Uh, so I'm very much looking forward to uh, this new venture with my guy Clint as well. Uh, I believe he's in the comment section as well. Shout out to my guy Clint. So uh, the Deadlock Podcast, January 5th, 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific time. That's going to be the launch of it. And obviously you guys are going to see it all over social media over the next couple of days so we can get the word out. So uh, the first couple episodes will be taking place on my channel and then we're going to move on over to uh, its own dedicated channel so you guys don't need to really go anywhere. The, the content will all be here for the first month or so. Shout out to Clint for shelling out the time to be able to do that podcast and obviously, uh, you know, giving us an hour every other week so that we can go over the best and biggest news that's going to be coming throughout the MMA pipelines. All right. Let's not waste any more time, Cody. We still got five more fights to get through. So let's get back to the breakdowns here. Uh, next up, we got uh, uh, Sean O'Malley taking on Howley and Paiva in terms of odds. You guessed it. Heavy chalk on uh, Sean O'Malley coming in at minus 300, plus 250, the return on Holly and Paiva. Um, seems like a pretty easy fight to break down, right? Holly and Paiva, goddamn, is he hittable. However, it's been very difficult for a lot of fighters to stop him. Kyler Phillips, unfortunately, found it out last time around, gassing himself out, trying to finish Paiva in that first round, then drops the next two rounds, ultimately losing a decision. Say what you want about that first round, possibly being a 10-8. Holly and Paiva ends up getting his hand raised regardless. He showed great resolve in that fight and great durability to be able to come back and pick up those next two rounds over Kyler Phillips. Now he's going up against, a, in my opinion, a better striker, you know, and a heavier striker in Sean O'Malley, who's such a wizard in the striking realm where he's just able to set up traps and really lull guys into certain situations and then capitalize with a big strike to kind of, you know, either put them on their ass or, or even just knock them clean out. And I feel that's exactly where, what we're going to get this weekend and another highlight reel for the Sugar Show. Um, I will say this. If this fight does get out of the first round, there could be issues here for Sean O'Malley. I do believe that Holly and Paiva will have a, a decent advantage on the ground if this fight, if he is successful in terms of dragging this fight to the ground. But I feel like the movement of O'Malley, not to mention the counter-striking that's going to be coming his way anytime Paiva tries to close the distance, is going to cause him too much problems here. So I do like the uh, couple spots here. The under 2.5, minus 125, I think that's a great spot as I do think O'Malley will find that knockout blow. Uh, O'Malley by KO, plus 110. You know, uh, last thing I'll say about this, and I'll swing it on over to you, to Cody. I know people are going to say, oh, he could have knocked out Chris Moutinho. Obviously, you finished him uh, late third round there, but it took him oh, and a half minutes to do so, right? Um, you know, shout out to everybody that had the inside the distance there because you guys got saved. You know, I don't know what. Herb, but, Herb yeah, Dean Herb. <laughs> had the inside the distance is what happened. Exactly. Herb had the inside the distance there. Uh, but seeing how poor the striking defense of Holly and Paiva is at times, it, it, you know, it, it's it, I was trying to convince myself to make a bet on Holly and Paiva here at, at, at the juicy dog odds that he's at, but I just can't pull the trigger, man. I think O'Malley is just going to walk him into a, a strike, and I think he's going to put his lights out here. I like O'Malley. O'Malley KO plus 110. That's how I'm rolling. How are you feeling about this one? Yeah, I'm going to roll the same thing. I don't really love the money line. I think it's kind of wide out at O'Malley minus 350, but yeah, by KO plus 110, beyond that, fight doesn't go the distance at minus 150. I like it as well. When you look at Sean O'Malley, uh, the fight with Chris Moutinho, I think part of it is... 
part of it is, oh, he could knock out Chris Moutinho. The other thing is he hit him with 230 significant strikes, man. Like, Chris Moutinho went through a life-changing beat and just happened to walk out on the other side. Rolian Pava, I'm not so sure he's going to be able to overcome that. Um, you mentioned the Kyler Phillips fight. Was the first round a 10-8 round? Um, if it wasn't, then 10-8 rounds don't exist. I mean, how was yeah. it not a 10-8 round? He had him deaded. Again, if you have a bad referee, which Leo Santos was hoping he had one last week, uh, if you have a bad referee, they step in and they stop it. In his case, it might not even been a bad referee stops that one. But all I'm saying is, like, sometimes you're just splitting hairs, and I think this is a fight where uh, it could definitely turn the other way very quickly. Sean O'Malley's just got the ability that he's very precise, he's very accurate. He hits Rolling Pava, and he has Pava hurt. I think he pounces on him. When you saw Kyler Phillips pounce, quite literally before the first round was even done, he was tired. In the second round, he was gassed. In the third round, he actually caught something like a third wind, but it wasn't enough. But he was kind of gassed the whole way through. When I look at Sean O'Malley, was he tired at the end of the Moutinho fight? Maybe. But he, I, how tired was he? Because here's a real interesting stat line, actually. Him versus Chris Moutinho. So the first round, he lands 77 of 106 strikes. Crazy. Is that not crazy? That's crazy. The second round, oh shit, he's tired, right? He still lands 70 strikes of 98. Mint. The third round, oh, well, now he's got to be tired. He threw his most punches of the fight at 114. He landed his most punches of the fight at 83 combined strikes. Like, he was actually getting better as the fight went on. Body language maybe looked like he was tired. Moutinho kept coming at him, but the guy never stopped throwing. He landed some beautiful punches in that fight. Moutinho was just fighting like his job was on the line because this was his dream, right? He gave a good account of himself, but he still got beat up and it still ended up getting stopped. 72% uh, strikes landed in the first, 71 in the second, 72 in the third. Consistent, you know? That, I think, is going to be the difference maker. Phillips had a good first round and then fell apart. I think O'Malley's going to be able to have a good first round and then build off of it. So I do like that, Malley, plus 110. The fight doesn't go the distance. It's going to cover us both sides because... Low-key, you brought this up, Roly and Pava's wrestling game. So Roly and Pava's been at Alpha Male for the last like two or three camps now. and He's been working on his wrestling a lot. You'd be an idiot to go into a Sean O'Malley fight and not try two things. Kick his leg and take him down, right? <laughs> so I do think that that's going to be part of Pava's game plan. It's going to be work those leg kicks, you know, try to cut him off a little bit, but then eventually force his fight to the ground. And then just like Marlon Cheeto Vera just, you know, bounce his head off the canvas like a basketball with a set of elbows, really open this guy up. So if Pava for some reason was able to get the fight to the ground, he probably finishes. And that's a fight doesn't go the distance minus 150. We're good. But best case scenario, our guy's going to keep this fight standing, knock him out sometime in the first or second round, cash our plus 110, Sean O'Malley TKO. And then we're still going to cash. The fight doesn't go the distance at minus 150. I like it. I like it. For some reason, I felt as though that you were going to go the, the the decision route here, considering that uh, O'Malley was, you know, struggling to take Moutinho out last time around. But I'm glad to see your process I mean, and approach for this one. Yeah, he hit him with a kitchen sink. And you yeah. know, this is a this is a crazy sport, though. But like Lewis Smolka never been knocked out, and then like a Vince yeah. Morales overhand you right. I don't even out. want to talk about that fight, Cody. Let's, you let's, know what let's I don't want to talk about, but I will talk about it real quick. Kennedy and Jaku, right? He fights he fights Israel Adesanya's boy and gets shellacked. Takes everything. And then he fights Da Ung Jung, and it's like a little elbow right up the middle completely freezes him. Like, there's no real rhyme or reason, and that's the glory of this game. But that's why there, it's unpredictable, right? There's a lot of variances. So uh, hopefully the variances are on our side, and he doesn't come out here and take a 
Chris Moutinho style beating. And if he does, do we know who the referee is? Is it Herb? Because I'd love if it would be Herb. <laughs> or Mark Smith. Oh, this thing's done before it gets going if it's Mark Smith in there. But yeah, if we get like a no-nonsense Keith Peterson, uh, he dies, he dies. Um, could go decision. I could see it. I wish we were privy to that information before we were able to make our bets. But uh, personally, I've reached out to the Nevada State Athletic Commission to see, like, how early can we get this information? And they said, we don't release it until, like, hours before the fights take place anyway. So is what it is. Apparently, they're trying to, like, uh, hide any type of – not hide, but try to avoid any type of corruption or people trying to pay these guys. Yeah, it makes sense. Because if you, if you knew this person was judging your fight a week in advance, then it'd be a lot easier to – approach the person whereas you know a couple hours out it's like yeah who knows it's in we'll just let them make a shitty decision on their own because exactly <laughs> what do you pay these guys for man god damn all right let's move on to the next fight here very intrigued to hear your thoughts on this one because it is the flyweight debut of cody garbrand he's going up against kai car france here in terms of odds we got minus 135 minus 140 for cody garbrand plus 120 the return here on kai car france and i guess there's two questions about this right what does Cody Garbrandt look like on the scale tomorrow morning? It can't look much worse than Jose Aldo has been looking at 135 pounds. And then will that play in part to his ability to take some shots here from Kai Car friends once they actually step inside the cage? Because Kai, you know, he has some pretty big heat. He can definitely put his opponents down uh, and, and hurt them. And, you know, Cody Garbrandt, we can nitpick a little bit of his durability, whether he's chinny or not, but he has definitely been put down in the past. And I think he's definitely learned his, his uh, lesson from that Pedro Munoz fight to not trade in the pocket with these folks anymore. You know, you're getting a little bit older, Cody. You can't be just swinging with these guys anymore. And I feel as though if he goes out there and plays a disciplined game here, he should be able to touch up Kai Car France with relative ease, man. I think he is a much better fighter here. Kai Car France, you know, he's gotten a couple shaky decisions to kind of go his way, but a lot of his, uh, you know, a lot of his fighting style is just wide-winging hooks, blitzing forward, and just trying to land a big shot, hoping to knock his opponent's head off. But if he's not able to, he has to rely on either knockdowns or just being the one that's landing the more impactful shots to get the decision here. However, if if Garbrandt can go back to you know trusting his footwork, trusting his hands, trusting his combinations, I feel like he absolutely touches up Kai Car France in this spot. I just want to sit back and see what he looks like at 125 pounds before I trust him with my money. With that said, though, you guys are here for props. I'm actually thinking that uh, um, Garbrandt to win this fight via decision uh, sitting at plus 360 is crazy, man. I think he can definitely go on there, go out there and put on a solid 15-minute performance. Kai is a little bit difficult to put away. I think the last time we've seen him in real trouble was obviously that Brandon crazy Brandon Roy Val fight where he got hit with that spinning back elbow and then obviously got choked after that. But outside of that, you know, durability has looked pretty solid. Again, Garbrandt hits pretty hard, but how much is he really giving back having to go down an extra 10 pounds? Even at the media scrum the other day, he goes, man, flyweight fight week hits different. No duh, dog. You got 10 more pounds to try to cut here, something that you haven't done in the past. Um, yeah, I want to see what he looks like on the scale tomorrow. Uh, and then obviously I want to see what he looks like on Saturday and if he's able to actually take those big shots from Kai Car France here. Because if he can withstand with that durability in his chin, I think he's going to be a problem at a 125 pounds what's your thoughts on this matchup yeah well, you know what a lot of it's i'd like to see him fight at 125 pounds first unfortunately this is the first time so we got to kind of go out there with a little bit of narrative and yeah i mean listen cody garbrandt's not the biggest 35 or so conceivably he'd be a good size flyweight could be able to fight at this weight class there's just so many question marks like imagine a guy has a bad chin right he has bad punch durability he's been knocked out a bunch of times mind you against some of the best guys in the sport 
Do you think cutting that extra 10 pounds would help that? Is cutting down? He's, he's in his 30s now. He's not exactly like the youngest guy going. He's not old, but weight cuts usually don't help punch resistance, right? You got to drain yourself. You got to get in the sauna. You got to be miserable. Like he's saying, fight week hits different. It feels different. You know, you're zapped for energy. I, I just, I don't know that it's necessarily the, 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 the fixed solution. And the flip side to that is maybe this is the weight class he always should have been at. You know, he's a former bantamweight champion. He's got big wins. He beat Dominic Cruz. He's fought the creme de la creme, two fights with TJ Dillashaw, fight with Pedro Munoz, wins over Rafael Asuncao. Like, there's a lot that you can like out of him. But, yeah, I don't know. This matchup's just kind of got me intrigued. On paper, Garbrandt all day, right? Technical boxing, Cody Garbrandt advantage. Uh, cardio, I mean, the guy's fought five rounds against Dominic Cruz, and he was dancing in there. Cardio shouldn't be a problem. Wrestling advantage? most definitely Cody Garbrandt. He's a two-time state champion. He took down Rob Font three times in their fight, but he's just not big enough to hold down these bantamweights. Against a flyweight, who knows? Wrestling could be part of his game. There's tons of stuff to like there. Chin's not good, or Chin's not great, really, but does that matter? Because Kaikar France is not necessarily the biggest hitter. What it comes down to me, though, is volume. Cody Garbrandt has big power, and I think he knows he's got big power, and as a result, he just doesn't throw no volume for my liking. I mean, the fight with Rob Font went 25 minutes, he lands 63. Other fights that have gone a little bit later, his fight with Rafael Asuncao was one second short of two full rounds, 10 minutes. In those 10 minutes, he had landed 19. Uh, other fights that have been stretched, because again, a lot of his fights have ended early. His fight with Dominic Cruz, in the, interestingly enough, he was outstruck 88 to 68 against Dominic Cruz. But there was the knockdown. That's what saves him, the big flashy punch. He allows himself to routinely fall behind on the striking stats. That's what worries me here is that dropping down to flyweight, a lot of times they just like, oh, I'll be the bigger guy. Yet you're giving up your speed because these little tiny 25ers, they're fast. And the adjustment from bantamweight to flyweight, it's a speed thing. So I think Kaikar Frost, again, if you look at him, he's fought in just much lesser competition, no doubt about it. But he's capable of going out there and throwing, landing 80, 90, 100 significant strikes if need be. And I honestly think that over the course of 15 minutes, if he just goes out there with output, minds his P's and Q's, doesn't get knocked down, he's live. He's certainly live. So I know I probably sound like a broken record, but I like the over one and a half, minus 170. I don't think Garbrandt's going to knock out France in the one and a half. I don't think France is knocking out Garbrandt in the one and a half. The longer this thing goes, the more punches start to rack up. Maybe somebody eventually falls, succumbs to something, but... With Garbrandt, I think it's too much of uh, just too much flash, you know? He just throws a few punches, hopefully drops you. Even the Cruz fight, you know, he drops him and he just sits there and he's pointing and he's taunting and he's like, why not try to rush the job? Why not try to go put him away? Like, you know, I'm not saying he's clowning, but he doesn't have that, that quite that killer instinct that I'd like out of a guy. So I think the smart play is Cody Garbrandt. Thankfully for me, I don't have to tell you my straight up pick in this one. I got to tell you the prop and I like the over one and a half. It's minus 170. I think that's the best way to attack it. I like it. I like it. <clears throat> All right, let's keep this moving along because we got three fights left, and I'm very intrigued about this next one. We got a welterweight scrap between Jeff Neal and Santiago Ponzinibbio, minus 130 on Ponzinibbio and plus 110 on the uh, the skidding, if you want to call it that, uh, Jeff Neal, who's lost his last two fights, obviously to Wonderboy and Neil Magny, who are two very difficult stylistic matchups for a lot of fighters, especially if they're not able to implement a grapple-heavy game plan, which is not Neal's uh, bread and butter or Jeff Neal's bread and butter. Um, 
he's now he's finally going up against a, a little bit more of a favorable matchup here against Santiago Ponzinibbio, who's going to want to throw leather and try to implement a superior striking game. Obviously, Santiago shows a little bit more knack for being a Muay Thai fighter, right? Throws his elbows, knees, kicks, all that. Whereas Jeff Neal, outside of his high kick, seems to get a lot of his work done with just his boxing. Um, I feel like this is a bounce back spot for Jeff Neal, though. I feel like uh, the way that Ponzinibbio fights, sometimes a little bit over aggressive, sometimes kind of just wades forward with some wide shots. I feel as though Jeff Neal should be able to counter effectively here and either find a knockout blow at a certain point in this fight or even just land the more devastating blows to eventually get a judge's decision. I will say this. I, there's a lot of guys I respect out there that are pretty confident on Ponzinibbio in this spot, and I completely understand that. But I feel as though this could be a potential buy low spot for Jeff Neal because everybody was riding this guy's coattails, favorite over Neil Magny, favorite over Wonderboy Thompson. And now he has those two difficult matchups and people are writing him off. I think this is a little bit more of a binary fight than dealing with those puzzles that are Neil Magny and Stephen Thompson. Uh, and with that said, I, I feel like he should be able to land the better and more devastating strikes here. Sure, Pons will move forward and he might look like he's doing with the aggression, but I think we'll see the better strikes coming here from Jeff Neal. And again, I think he's live to knock him out in this spot. So there's two spots that I was actually looking at. Earlier in the week, I was feeling confident about Jeff Neal winning by decision, which is currently sitting at plus 525. But the more that I've been thinking about it, man, I feel like one of his counters are going to land clean enough here and he should be able to put out the lights of Santiago Ponzinibbio. And that's currently sitting at plus 175, plus 200 for Jeff Neal to win by knockout. That's kind of where I'm leaning here. I got Neil by knockout. Do you think Ponzinibbio presents him with troubles here and we see him go on a three-fight skid, or do you think that Jeff Neil bounces back and gets his hand raised once again? Man, I was definitely on side Jeff Neal. I think that this would be a, a bounce-back spot for him, and then and then a week ago he gets pulled over for a DUI with an yeah. unregistered handgun in the car. And do you like, think that's that much of an impact? Though? Like, it seems like the gun, he doesn't seem like with a guy. Gun. Yeah. It's, it's more so that you're drunk, you know. I mean, you've got a fight coming up in a few weeks, and uh, I, I there's actually, you might be surprised to find this out. You probably won't be surprised to find this out, but uh, a lot of fighters are actually alcoholics. They have drinking problems. <laughs> but, but they're able to cut it off, you know, before yeah. the weight cut. Like, come on. Like, you know, put the bottle down and just finish off camp for the last two weeks. But... When you're in the eight-week camp, it's very difficult to, like, back in the day, they'd be like, no sex, kid. You know how unbelievably fucking difficult that would be? No sex, no booze, no smoke. Why do you think so many guys fail their post-fight drug tests? Come on. You're still a human being at the end of the day. You got to do a little bit of living. So I don't know how much it does affect him, right? Is it a sign of he's not fully committed? Maybe. Is it a sign that he's stressed out? He's dealing with some jitters or some anxiety? Maybe. He is on a two-fight losing streak. He looked awful. Dude was the favorite over Wonderboy Thompson. Uh, Solid-looking run in the UFC. Sky's the limit for this guy. You look at his list of opponents. Blah Muhammad. Dropped Muhammad twice. Who the hell drops Blah Muhammad? Guy's got a cast iron chin, right? Man, Jeff Neal looks good. Uh, his fight with uh, Nico Price, like, geez, Nico Price is another one of these dogs with a good chin, knocks him out. Mike Perry, the only thing Mike Perry got going for him is his chin. Head kicks. Mike Perry, like, 20 minutes after the fight, started warming up again. He thought he hadn't fought yet. Just no recollection of what happened for, like, a week earlier. That's crazy, man. Jeff Neal at his best has that power, but he's just, he just, I don't know. He's like a front forward brawler, like not a brawler, but he only uses his boxing. And against these guys that move laterally and have a speed advantage, he's just chasing them the whole time. Wonderboy Thompson is just such a bad, bad, bad matchup for him. And well, he proved to be it. But Neil Magny fought a pretty similar game plan. He used his wheels pretty good. He moved side to side and then eventually just, you know, grappled them up and smothered them. Good game plans. 
The thing with Ponsonibio is he doesn't move backwards. He comes at you. He's more aggressive. He likes to engage. That would be his downfall. If you're going to fight Jeff Neal and give him the fight that he desires, you're going to get hit. And if you get hit, it's going to be a problem. Now, with Santiago Ponzinibbio, he's on this legendary run. But keep in mind, he gets knocked out by Lorenz Larkin, right? Then he beats Andreas Stahl, Swedish wrestler, cut from the promotion. Court McGee, just a grinder, but not, not a power guy. Zach Cummings is another grinder. Nordin Taleb, not really sure what he does particularly well, but he's a generalist. Gunnar Nelson is an undersized jiu-jitsu guy. Mike Perry. Mike Perry actually gave him a decent go, truth be told. Um, and, I mean, Perry's just very one-dimensional, right? And then he takes this two-and-a-half-year-long layoff. When he came back from the two-year-long layoff, he's slower. He's 33. He dealt with some injuries. He dealt with a massive, like, eye problem. And that fight with Jing Liang Li, I mean, he just got caught with the right hand and got knocked out. The subsequent fight against Miguel Beza, he got hit 104 times by Miguel Beza. It's actually a career high in striking numbers for Beza, who doesn't usually hit guys that much. But therein lies the problem with Ponzinibbio is he's super hittable. And you don't want to be hittable when you're fighting Jeff Neal. So when I see dog money on Jeff Neal attempted, when I see that plus 165 Neal by TKO, that's the prop I like the best. But I'd be lying if I didn't say the DUI thing didn't bug me out a little bit and got me at least thinking, like, if this guy is not taking it seriously, you know, why, why should I invest hard-earned money in this guy? But he might be half-half on the fence. But I think this fight reeks of recency bias and that, He's looked awful his last two fights fighting a very specific type of opponent, and this is a guy that's going to give him a totally different fight, a fight that he craves, and usually a fight that he thrives in. Yeah, I'm right there with you. Again, just going back to the DUI thing, I feel as though he's one of those guys that wouldn't self-sabotage himself in a sense. Like, it was Thanksgiving. Let's cut the guy a little bit of slack. I mean, have a cup of wine or a beer or something like that. I don't, th I don't think he's getting shit-faced out here, uh, you know, trying to sabotage himself in the middle of a camp. And that's kind of where I think people might be overblowing that, that sense. And if it was as bad as most people are making it out to be, I don't think he'd be fighting this weekend either, man. This guy knows he's on a two-fight skid. He's been begging to leave his Lone Star Texas Grill job that he was having earlier in his UFC career. He was finally able to do that. And now to sabotage himself by getting fucked up throughout training camp, it just doesn't make sense to me. He seems like a a more rational guy than that. Again, we again, people can say he's completely contradicting himself by getting this DUI. But again, like shit happens. I'm giving him some slack, but if he does come out there and get knocked out immediately by Santiago Ponzinibbio, maybe I'll backtrack on my words a little bit. So, again, very much looking forward to that fight, seeing how that one plays out. Co-main event, co event time, Cody. We got the bantamweight women's strap on the line. Amanda Nunes coming in at minus 1,000 now, plus 650 to return on Juliana Pena. Uh, I think in these situations, it's like, how does Pena win? When does Pena win? Or sorry, uh, when does Nunes win? Sorry, I did not mean Pena at all. I meant Nunes. Uh, when does Nunez win? And the only thing I can kind of come towards is is the over here, which I think is roughly around minus 120. You know, a lot of people want to get, you know, sucked into the fact that Amanda Nunes should just go out there and absolutely starch these women. But like, Pena has that that grappling style that could potentially prolong this fight. Not saying she's going to have tremendous success with it, but at least it like slows down the fight, pushes her up against the, uh, the, the cage, tries to clinch her, tries to drag her to the ground. And that's going to eat up minutes off the clock, in my opinion. And I feel like we could see this fight go over that one and a half round mark. However, I think the result is inevitable uh, with... Uh, with Amanda Nunes getting that knockout. Uh, it's hilarious seeing it priced currently at uh, minus, oh, it's only minus 145. It was the inside the distance that kind of made me giggle a little bit, which is currently sitting at uh, a minus 285, minus 300 on certain spots. Uh, I think Nunes wins. I, I just don't see where Pena wins. Uh, 
is she maybe she gets a submission that's probably her path to victory i don't see her beating over uh five rounds we've seen her slow down in past fights we've seen her get guillotined by a striker in jermaine durandamy who would have called that shit and then uh luckily for her sarah mcmahon had much worse gas tank than her and she was able to submit her in that third round there as well so uh, i like nunes here i think she'll deal with the grappling effectively but i think it will prolong the fight causing it to go over that one and a half round mark so rather than you know i'm seeing people take the under one and a half and they think that should be enough you know maybe just take nunes inside the distance or nunes by ko i think that would be enough for her to get the victory here so I like Nunes, Nunes inside the distance, and the over one and a half if you're putting a, uh, a gun to my head in terms of picking a prop that has decent odds, not chalk odds, at decent odds, the over one and a half is where I'd go. How are you feeling about this one? Over one and a half, baby. You know I love yeah, it. Yeah, let's over go. One and a half. It, okay, so they don't usually give you an over one and a half. Yeah, they usually say that two and a half. And if you want the over one and a half, you got to go to a different book and you got to pay that juice. But I think that there's this fight or this card in particular, there's a lot of these nice looking over one and a half that you can get at minus 135, minus 145. In this case, you're getting a minus 125. So I think, yeah, what is the one thing that Pena brings to the table where she's a decent size, I suppose, and she's going to just try to grind her up against the cage? I can't imagine her game plan is stand strike because Pena is not a very good striker. I mean, she's very predictable. She's very herky jerky. Everything is mostly predicated on use a couple strikes to enter that clinch and try to grind on your opponent. So no doubt she'll be pursuing takedowns, and I think that will slow that at least the first round down. Uh, eventually when Nunez does start to find her mark, it's not like Pena's chinny, she's never been knocked out. And I think that is again going to at least slow this thing down long enough that we can hit that over one and a half. Beyond that, I don't mind actually the Amanda Nunez by submission at plus 350. Mm -hmm. So when you look at Juliana Pena, she got submitted by Jermaine Durandamy. If that's not a red flag, I don't know what is. But again, she's never been knocked out. She shows a TKO loss 10 years ago against Sarah Moross back in the day, but it was a doctor stoppage after the second round. Her chin's not the problem. Her problem is that when she starts to fatigue, she gives up these bum-ass uh, submission attempts. And it's a lot the same. Remember when she fought Valentina Shevchenko? She won the first round. In the second round, she completed the takedown. She got on top. She started to tire. Valentina threw up an armbar from guard, and it worked. It worked because Pena starts to tire. She starts to fatigue. She wants a way out. Now, the Jermaine Durandamy fight, she loses the first round, looks terrible. Second round looks terrible, but there's an argument she won it. Third round's for all the marbles, man. Right? This is a guaranteed title shot if you beat her. Go out there and perform. And what does she do? She tires. She puts herself in a bad submission, uh, a bad spot, and taps to a guillotine choke. Like, what's going on here? Amanda Nunez is a high-level BJJ black belt. And when we used to think she doesn't use her submission game, we just saw her use her submission game. It's Megan Anderson. Like, just take the easiest path to victory sometimes. And I think that's this one. Take the easiest path to victory. Whereas Pena is going to come, try to rough you up in the first. Then she'll tire. Then you take her down. Then you submit her. And at plus 350, I don't mind that. The inside the distance, get that too. Like that too. The TKO, I think that's the gimme. Like, it seems obvious. Oh, well, you know, she hit so damn hard. And Who's going to want to fight her for 25 minutes? But I don't think that's the easy path. I think the easy path is tire her out, and she will tap. So plus 350, Nunez by submission. Beyond that, the best play, over one and a half, minus 125. I hope that comes through because the last time I backed in over one and a half for Amanda Nunes, she goes out there and goes ape shit on Chris Cyborg. And I was just like, God damn, I thought we were going to see a measured approach. Well, you know what? I mean, uh, someone was talking about someone last time. They're like, man, she's just coming off a fight where it's the same thing. Like, why are you looking to hit an over one and a half? She just walked through Megan Anderson in two minutes. It's like, yeah. And then one fight prior, she goes 25 minutes with Felicia Spencer. Like, weird. One fight prior, 
she was gassed out and wrestling and holding on to Jermaine Durand. Like it was a terrible performance. So the thing with an athlete is it's not hockey where it's like, oh, well, uh, John Tavares had a bad night Monday and he can just bounce back on Thursday or they're streaky for a week and then they go on a point streak. Like this is a one singular off. You don't know how good they feel in the day of, but you got to go out and do the best you can. And so that's why a lot of the time we try to measure them. What, what, what can they do at their best? What can they do at their best? When you're sitting there watching the fights and someone shits in your apple pie, more often than not, they ain't at their best. <laughs> Something went south. We didn't see it coming. Dems to breaks. The only way Juliana Pena wins this fight is if Amanda Nunez blows out her knee in the walk up to the octagon or has some type of stomach virus which causes her. Did you know it's an automatic TKO if you throw up between rounds? Like something like that. Like she's sick. And like it would have to be. It would have to be bum shit. The same way Aljamain Sterling won a UFC title. It would have to be <laughs> bum shit or else it ain't going down. So we obviously got Nunez. I'm going to go with Nunez inside the distance, more specifically by submission at plus 350. And again, I like that over one and a half. Not much beyond that. I can see it now. Pena just trying to stick her finger down Amanda Nunez's throat, trying to make her <laughs> yeah. bar for something like that. And, and, fucking flawless, flawless. Let's go, uh, Juliana Pena. But uh, yeah, I'm glad that me and you are on the same page with the over one and a half. Cody, it's been an hour and a half and we're at the main event. I think that this is a win for us in terms yeah. of being efficient with our time and talking about these fights. I know fights. Yeah, most, most of the viewers usually like when we go long, but again, we got lives too, folks. We got shit to do on, on this Thursday as well. So uh, yeah, glad that we're finally at the main event here at an hour and a half mark. So uh, before we do get into the main event, shout out to the 280 live viewers that we currently have. Make sure you guys hit that like, hit that subscribe, and then show my guy Cody some love uh, on his YouTube channel as well, CJMM may where you guys can find his betting uh betting the bees i believe it is or breaking down the b league uh, i believe that's uh, what uh, his show is over there as well as the documentaries that he's been dropping over there as well so make sure you guys show him some love all right main event time charles Oliveira, dustin poirier uh minus 170 on poirier plus 150 on charles Oliveira, and more often than not charles Oliveira is a pretty much a shoe win for a fight doesn't go to decision i believe in his 29 or 28 ufc career fights he's only seen the judges score cards three times the guy either goes out there and gets the kill or goes out on a shield luckily for him for his past eight fights he's been able to go out there and beat his opponents finishing all but one of them i believe that was that tony ferguson fight where he was able to just control him on the ground now he's going up against dustin poirier who will more than likely be bringing the fight to him and cause chaos throughout this fight i like violence here cody i don't like it early you know the under one and a half is a little bit shaky that's why i think it's at, sitting at plus 150 right now but you know the under two and a half minus 120 under three and a half minus 190 uh even the fight doesn't start uh round four minus 170 i think that's a great line here honestly i think the fight is super volatile uh you know any either side can win here uh you know it could be a 50 50 ish fight uh which would kind of lead people to believe okay just take the value on charles Oliveira there but man like given the way he fights and given the way poirier fights uh i i just see this fight finishing i would rather take the inside the distance here rather than taking a a, a side personally i am leaning on the poirier side i do think he'll be able to stay safe in those chaotic moments and then eventually find his success with his own offense but charles Oliveira has really gained a ton of confidence in his striking throughout his career and most recently too right he's going out there and knocking these dudes out when people are thinking that his only path to victory is uh, a submission but he's really rounding out his game it could give poirier some troubles here but no matter
matter what happens in this fight, I do think that we see uh, the fight doesn't go to decision hit here. Uh, Chalky himself, obviously taking the full five rounds to not go decision. Um, but again, like I said, fight doesn't start round four or round three. Sorry, fight doesn't round start round five. Minus 170, I think, is a great spot here. Yeah, violence, violence, violence. Uh, I, I know there's a streak of main events that have been going to a decision, even Santos and Walker, but I will say this. With Santos and Walker, you're getting 205ers that will more than likely start to taper off in terms of the power and energy reserves the later a fight gets here. We've seen a couple late finishes from the Poirier side. We know that these guys can finish fights the later that they go, and it would be very... Uh, weird and orthodox and unorthodox to see these guys just really just staring at each other in the later parts of this fight not really going for a finish so i'm going with the fight doesn't go to decision my favorite spot though is the fight doesn't start round five at minus 170 uh poirier by tko in terms of a specific method uh that's sitting at plus 125 i like that as well where's your head at for this one yeah, listen, this is a great main event for sure. I mean, you got two of the best guys at 155 pounds, and it's going to be a very entertaining scrap. I got to go with Charles Oliveira, though. Um, and I actually don't mind the Charles Oliveira by TKO at plus 650. I think that the natural path, again, would probably be the submission, especially when you <clears throat> consider if Khabib gets on your back, he puts in a rear naked choke, Charles gets on your back, you know, you're probably going to find something. The guy's very dynamic. He's the UFC submission leader for a reason. If you give him anything, he takes it, right? Um, but again, Dustin's a BJJ black belt. If he thrives him off, great. I think Charles is eventually just going to, I just I think he's going to overwhelm him. I don't know why I keep getting this gut impression. Dustin Poirier is the man. He's, if you were to just create a video game and have a build a fighter, you'd probably give him stats just like Dustin Poirier. The guy can do it all. However, it seems like maybe takedown defense could be one slight problem in his game. His last two fights against Conor McGregor, who effectively cannot grapple, right? So we, he did not have to worry about any grappling in that spot. Let's toss those out for a minute. So let's talk about his fight before that, Dan Hooker. He gives up four takedowns to Dan Hooker. Dan Hooker has never completed four takedowns in a singular fight. In fact, he's not a wrestler. He's not a very good grappler. Four takedowns he scores over Dustin Poirier. It's not a very good look. As well, I mean, he, it's a five-round fight. And Hooker has his moments, man. He dominates the early portion before eventually tiring. He, he's got him in all sorts of trouble. Trouble that you don't want to be in with a guy like Charles Oliveira. The fight prior is the Khabib Nurmagomedov fight. Now, there's no shame in getting taken down seven times by Khabib Nurmagomedov. However, it's seven times on eight attempts. So he basically doesn't even come close to stuffing anything. 87% takedown offense for Khabib in that fight. Now, I found this interesting, actually. Uh, you can look at any of his other fights. Khabib Nurmagomedov. Him versus Justin Gaethje. 66% takedown accuracy. Him versus Conor McGregor, right? 42% takedown accuracy. Him versus Ally Quinta, 40% takedown accuracy. Let, let's even talk about Michael Johnson. He can't wrestle, right? 33% takedown accuracy against Michael Johnson. Daryl Horcher, well, surely Daryl Horcher, right? 66% against Daryl Horcher. Th not one time in any of his UFC fights has he gone off to the tune of 86%. 87%. You just cut right through him. And therein lies kind of the problem with Justin Poirier. Dude is a banger. Dude is tough. Dude is in your face. Dude wants to brawl. But when you look at his losses, or when you look at his fights in general, McGregor, not a grappler. Hooker, not a grappler. Holloway, not a grappler. Eddie Alvarez, not a grappler. Justin Gaethje, Anthony Pettis, Michael Johnson, Bobby Green, Joe Duffy, Yancey Medeiros. Oh, shit. He's kind of got a lot of favorable matchups thrown his way. Charles is not that guy. 
He showed in the Tony Ferguson fight that it doesn't matter if you're a good wrestler or a good grappler. He's very physically strong. When he peels you to the ground, he just gives no space. There was a time where he was a quitter. There's a number of fights, you know, the esophagus tear against Max Holloway, the Cub Swanson fight, the delayed reaction, the Paul Felder fight where you're styling on a guy, he hits you three times and you just curl over. There's been instances. But my God, man, this nine-fight winning streak he's on right now, he's looked increasingly better every time. And I think he really cemented that in his fight with, uh, his last fight against Michael Chandler, where he gets serious adversity, seriously hurt, stunned, fights his way through it, and then knocks out Michael Chandler, a guy who I think we can all agree can take one hell of a punch. The guy's just dangerous, versatile everywhere. He can strike, he can grapple, he can wrestle, he seems to have good cardio, he's got the willingness to win. I just think that because one guy just beat Conor McGregor, he's going to have that minus next to his name. The other guy's being overlooked. He's a sitting champion at plus money. And so my worst case scenario is I went with this theory with Sergio Pettis over Horiguchi. How are they going to give you the champion at plus money? Crazy. And I got my ass kicked for the better half of three and a half <laughs> rounds. <laughs> and then he hit him with a spinning back fist. I'm hoping some a little bit of magic from Charles Oliveira too. Uh, hopefully early though. The longer this thing goes, it's going to probably play towards Dustin. But I just got a feeling deep down that Charles has got the goods to uh, catch him early. And I'm really going to go with that grappling narrative. I think the grappling is going to be the key here. As long as Charles uh, goes out there and executes, he's a uh, live underdog. So Charles Oliveira by TKO plus 600. Fight doesn't go the distance, as you mentioned. Um, if your book offers, Manfred also mentioned, if your uh, book offers fight doesn't start round five, like that as well. <clears throat> but uh, yeah, Chuck Yo, baby. Let's roll with the, we got Jose Aldo as an underdog in last week's main event. Let's try to get another one here. My heart is definitely with Oliveira because there's just something seeing a guy come into the UFC and go through the trials and tribulations that he's been through and then finally achieve that gold. Now let's let him hold on to it for a little bit. You know, Poirier, money fights, whatever. But Oliveira, that guy really earned that title shot and I'm glad that he finally has that gold around his way. So trust me, my the, the fan in me is going to be cheering for Oliveira, but the better in me is going to be cheering for somebody to get decapitated and hopefully it happens before that fifth round. All right, best bets and props. Uh, sorry, uh, the best, um, three best bets from us coming up right now. But first and foremost, as I always like to share with you guys, the guest that I'm having on for tomorrow's The Ultimate Wayne Show, we got none other than Mr. Jeremy Kennedy, fresh oh, off of his shit. win over the El Matador Emmanuel Sanchez last weekend. Uh, the man's recently been getting into MMA betting quite a lot. You know, he followed me uh, a couple months ago and uh, yeah, I just picked his brain and he's like, yeah, I man, I'm trying to get into it. He's betting the regionals. He's doing all this type of stuff. Uh, right so I'm on. hoping to get some very good insight from him going into tomorrow's fight. So uh, it's actually going to be a special start time because he has to pretty himself up because he's going to be going over to the World MMA Awards tomorrow. So special start time tomorrow of 3 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, Jeremy Kennedy and myself going over UFC 269. All right, let's get in to the three best prop bets that everybody has here. First and foremost, I'll kick things off. Just like we talked about, Oliver Poirier won't start round four. Sorry, that's the one that I'm talking about. Uh, at minus 170, uh, I really like that spot. Uh, I'd be surprised if we see this fight uh, even go over a 10-minute mark. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm expecting violence in this fight, and I'm expecting uh, it to end before that fourth round starts. Secondly, I do like Dominic Cruz via decision at plus 185. I think it's nonsensical to bet his line, even though he is a, a plus 100 dog. I'd be surprised if he gets uh, Pedro Munoz out of there. You know, but Munoz has shown he's very durable, can take a lot of shots, and Cruz 
notoriously not really a heavy hitter, more volume uh, puncher, likes to rely on his output rather than power. And I'd be surprised if he gets him out of there. So just take the, the decision if you're picking Cruz at all. I like that lineup plus 185. And then lastly, I'm going to go with uh, Randy Cost and uh, Tony Kelly to not start round three at minus 150. Again, pretty simple. Costa early or Kelly past that six-minute mark. Uh, but I do think that we'll see a finish even before that third round kicks off. I think those are great lines as well at minus 150. All right, we'll go over John's uh, three best bets, three best prop bets first, and then we'll head on over to Cody's. John likes Sakai versus Tuivasa. If I go to decision at plus 180, I think that's a damn good spot. I think me and Cody yep. are in agreement there. Uh, secondly, he has Garbrandt and Car France. If I go to decision at plus 140, another solid spot in my opinion. And then lastly, he has Anders Munez. If I go to decision at plus 450, which I think is a little bit actually, sorry, I, I might be off on that line. My be a little bit of a typo there yeah sorry it's plus 170 on that prop there i'll make sure i change that for you guys but yeah plus 170 on munez and fight uh anders to go to a decision cody let's swing it on over to you brother john my guy with all those decisions i like <laughs> it uh i'm gonna go with cruisers as munoz fight goes the distance minus 185 munoz never been finished before cruz has been finished one time in 14 years and he'll tell you it's a bad referee call all the same you got a lot of durability here and both guys are talented, but not the biggest finishers and less chinny opponents. So I think fight goes the distance. I absolutely love it. Kelly Costa over one and a half. Um, I, I still actually do like this, but as we were doing the show, the Amanda Nunez over one and a half is minus 125. You could definitely insert that if you thought Costa's going to do what Costa does, and that's bomb rush him. I think he's going to have a slightly more measured approach. Tony Kelly's never been finished. If you think you've got a cardio problem, don't go and throw 27 head kicks in the first round, kid. So... Slightly more measured approach against a half durable guy in, in Tony Kelly. I think we're going to at least hit that over one and a half. And you got one with Ige by decision again. Now I'm not thinking about Charles Oliveira inside the distance plus 650. I like that better than Ige by decision plus 250. By KO, I, sorry. By KO plus 650, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, KO, TKO, also the distance. Yeah, not inside the distance, but yeah. Knock, n knock him out or have the referee jump in or whatever you want to do. But yeah, for the sake of this, Ige by decision. This might be a little bit tougher. It just depends on the version that we see out of Josh Emmett. Josh Emmett comes up in shape with good output, uh, ready to go 15 minutes. He does have too much firepower for Ige. One thing about Ige is that against these bigger, heavier hitter opponents, he's been coming up short. He has a short little reach on him, and he, I don't know. He, just, he doesn't wear the damage quite as good. But I got a feeling that he's going to be able to put his grind on and just get that volume going. He's got really fast hands. He's got tight boxing. He's just got to go put the full package together against an Emmett that's 36 years old coming off a year and a half long layoff. So I did put it down plus 250. However, I think I might switch that one out for Charles Oliveira as like my three best props because love me some plus 600, right? Uh, regardless, hopefully they all hit, man, Preet, and we can enjoy this card because it's, uh, it's a fun one. It looks like it's going to be a really entertaining one as well. And uh, yeah, we're getting near the end of the year. So definitely want to end things off with a banger. Absolutely. We got one fight or one card left after this one, uh, the Dacus and Derek Lewis card next week. I'm actually not going to be watching that one live. I'm going to be down at that uh, local MMA event that we have here, Tarps Off Fight Club, making their debut over here in Ontario. So I can't wait to go out there and watch that one. Um, anything you want to say here on the back end, Cody, and then I'll wrap this thing up? I was actually thinking to go to Tarps Off as well. Uh, like my cousin's getting married on December 30th or something. Like, I don't know. That must be so expensive to get a wedding right. date. <laughs> What's he thinking? He's actually marrying into my family. He's marrying my cousin. So what is he thinking? Um, but all the same, I was like, yo, it'd be a good bachelor party. To It's in Niagara Falls, right? So there's plenty of entertainment stuff to do afterwards. But go to the fights. Um, 
and I don't know, there's the UFC card, and Jake Paul was supposed to fight Fury, which I thought was free money for Jake Paul, but Fury's out, and it's Tyron Woodley, and I told myself never again. I'm never watching Tyron Woodley fight ever again. So I might see you at Tarps Elbow. I'll shoot you a message. Perfect. I can't wait for that. All right. Uh, on behalf of myself and Cody, we appreciate you guys checking out the show. Shout out to the 275 live viewers that are still with us. Make sure you guys hit that like and subscribe on the way out. But also make sure you guys show my guy Cody some love on his channel. Link it to his channel is in the description below. And even John, I have the link to the Club and Sub podcast in the description below. Make sure you guys show him some love. He'll be back next week to help me break down Derek Lewis versus Chris Dawkins. And we don't get Cody again until... UFC 270, I believe, is the second event of uh, January. That's going to be going down January 22nd. Very much looking forward to that and obviously chopping it up with you. Hope to see you next week at the fights. Otherwise, good luck on your bets this weekend. Good luck on your bets next week. Uh, happy holidays. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year until I see you the next time. Uh, but, yeah, appreciate everybody checking out the show. Good luck on your bets to, uh, on the weekend. And make sure you guys join me tomorrow uh, with Jeremy Kenny at 3 p.m. Eastern to break down the card one last time. All right. That's a wrap. War fight doesn't go to decision for Charles Oliveira and Dustin Poirier. Because if that doesn't hit, <laughs> I might have to quit my job. Let's just put it that way. All right. See you guys. Or get one. Who knows? <laughs> exactly. <laughs>